Hey, this is DM Mitch from Dungeon Master's Block. And this is DM Chris. And if you are loving our podcast and you want to help us to grow and to support our podcast and see us get even better as a podcast, Chris, what can they do? Head over to our Patreon account. We've just started one up. Go to patreon.com and search Dungeon Master's Block, and you'll find all of the great rewards that are in store for you at patreon.com. Hi, I'm J.M. Perkins, author and game designer, and you're listening to the Dungeon Master's Block podcast. to another edition of the Dungeon Master's Block, the place where we talk about the most important person in the game, the Dungeon Master, the only person capable of playing God, killing characters, and lowering the egos of all the other players at the table. I'm one of your hosts, Dungeon Master Chris. And I'm Dungeon Master Mitch. And we have a great episode for you today dealing with survivalist and horror gaming. Uh, If you've listened to our podcast at all, you know that we've had this kind of interaction with Tribality.com and some of their writers going on. We've had Rich Howard on. Uh, and we have some more episodes planned with, with other writers and contributors to that website. And today we have J.M. Perkins. And if you're not familiar with his work at all, he writes two separate columns at uh, Tribality.com, one specifically dealing with survivalist and horror-type gaming. And so he contacted us shortly after we got done with the Rich Howard interview and said, hey, we should talk about survivalist and horror campaigns. I feel like there's a lot that I can offer to your listeners that could help them and inspire them to do survivalist and horror-type gamings. And so when we get to that interview later on in the episode, I will tell you, he certainly does that for both of us. There was a lot of things that were talked about that inspired us quite a bit to add some of these elements into our games that deal specifically with survivalists, adding new elements and rules in that help your players think more critically and, and, and think just a little bit deeper about, okay, do I need food, do I need water, things like that, and also talking to us about how to describe things in such a way that makes this sort of element of horror come alive in the minds of our characters. And so we're really excited for that interview to come up. We're going to talk about some of the things that he's written other than that. And and just he's going to share with us just so much information and knowledge that's just going to... It's going to scare you how much he actually knows about survivalist <laughs> so, yeah, and horror gaming. It's a really great interview. Got a lot of great ideas. Hopefully it'll spur your interests in, if you haven't already done survivalist-type horror-type campaigns, that this will be the moment where you're like, that's... That's something I want to do, at least even for like a one-shot. There's some yeah. great ideas coming up. We definitely want uh, to encourage you to use any of the ideas that you just really latch on to in this episode. Yep. So before we get to that portion, before we get to the story, before we get to the meat, we are going to jump into some shout-outs. And so, Mitch, uh, we have a couple of shout-outs this week. One of them is from our good buddy Rich Howard. He's yeah. been on this show. He wrote, uh, great show, five stars. Much-needed resource for new and old DMs alike. Whether you're new to gaming or decades in, the show gives a ton of great advice, adventure hooks, and fun stories. It's exactly what I was looking for. Thank you very much, Rich. Thanks yeah, for being thanks, such, a, such a loyal listener and such a great friend. I love that, that guy, yeah. even, even though he likes Aquaman. I, I love our, I love our like, <laughs> Gmail conversations going back and forth and how he doesn't know which one we're talking yeah. to right away. It's great. Keep that mystery. Yeah, going. right, right. So, Mitch, who else do we have? Uh, we have another five-star from Scheduled. He says, uh, it's entitled, Fun. Nice and simple. And he tells us, good ride, easygoing podcast. Nice and simple, keep it simple. I yep. like that. That's what we're trying to be. A good ride, an easygoing podcast. Yep. Thank you, Skate Guild. Yeah, thank you very much, Skate Guild. So, without further ado, let's jump into story time. Story time. The time during the episode 
where we talk about what happened last week during our campaigns, our favorite moments, what we learned about ourselves, and what we learned about each other. Please join us now as we enjoy Storytime. All right, so because of the length of this episode this week, we have a lot for story time that we want to share for you, but we are going to split it up into part one and part two. So uh, this week, we're going to share, obviously, part one with you. And next week, for our next episode, you'll have to tune in for part two of what happened during my last session as DM. Uh, so Chris, uh, last session, I DM'd, and in the story, we kind of left off before that session with your character, Crew Roar, with a javelin-sized arrow through his chest. Uh, he just jumped in front of the king who was uh, wearing armor of arrow attraction, and yep. he took an arrow to the chest. Not, not to, to the, the knee, knee, to the chest. <laughs> um, for the king, and he like passed out, um, and that's kind of where we left it off last time. Where did we pick up? What happened after you, you saw a priest? Yep, we saw a priest. priest I said, Pelor. "Get the priest! Yep, get yep. the priest!" Because he kind of was like he was peeking through the curtains, yep. and all of a sudden he's like, "Oh frick, <laughs> he did die!" <laughs> and he like kind of this like slow like <laughs> closing the not, curtain. Not real really quick. slow, no, but yeah, he just he peaced out. He <laughs> just ran. Comedy world, like <laughs> yeah, it's just like closes oh, the curtains. No. It creaks like a <laughs> yeah, door. Yeah, it creaks like a door. Uh, but yeah, so you you were like, "Get the priest!" and then you passed out. Tell us uh, about. What happened this time? At least half of it. Yeah, yeah, Part one, part two. Yep, so the priest took off running. I was unconscious. I think I got healed shortly after that. Ralph and... Ralph and a Rick's couple of others up. came around and, and healed me. Uh, and we decided that, obviously, we have to chase after this priest. Um, because that's, one, where we were being led by the DM to go and do. And two, he tried <laughs> to kill the king. So we should probably stay in good terms with the king and follow this priest of Pelor to wherever the heck it was that he was going. And so we... We run out of the the arena that we were in where they're handing out all the awards and stuff, and, and we run out into the main square of the city. We don't really see the priest anywhere. We just see a lot of battles that are starting to happen, correct? We just, I mean, there's priests of Pelor that have turned, are fighting other priests of Kor yep. and Pelor, and the knights are fighting everybody. It's Very just a lot of confusing battle. Priests and knights both fighting and both standing around confused because everybody's trying to figure out what priests of Pelor are good, what priests of Pelor yeah. are bad. Nobody really they don't knows. Wanna, like, no knights or priests of Pelor want to kill good priests of Pelor, but until they start attacking, and it's just a, a whole battle of confusion. Yeah, nobody's really going to know what's going on. Uh, and so Caleb turned into his hawk form, started flying up into the sky to see if he could locate the priest. And he ended up finding him, correct? He found... He, he saw him running into the temple. He followed him into the temple and saw him heading down uh, a stairway to, like, a basement or cellar area of the temple. Yep, yep. Flew into the temple, and he kind of, like, turned left, went down some stairs, and we ended up following him and found him at the entrance to the temple, just waiting there for us. Said, hey, I know where he went. He went downstairs. We go down the stairs. There's a lot of different doors down there. It's like a cellar, basically a cellar area in the Priest of Pelor. Lower, lower level. Yeah, yeah it's not like, really a cellar. Like we open some of the doors. It it's be, like a, but... there's bedrooms. I mean, there's mm-hmm. library. I mean, there's just a it's whole bunch of... where the priests of, sleep. Yeah, there's yeah, a whole bunch of places down there. Not in the temple itself, but underneath the yep, temple. Yep, underneath it. And so we we went all the way down. Of course, it's the last door mm-hmm. the, in the hallway. We open it up, and inside we see the priest standing there by an altar, I believe, yep, down there. Standing by an altar with... This portal open with a face looking through the portal at him, kind of talking with him. What did the face look like? 
nice looking face? No, it was Hello? very, no, it was very like just deformed. And I think you said that there were scars all over it and stuff just like that. Like it was just grotesque. completely grotesque face shining through this, por- not shining, but looking through this portal at the former priest of Pelor standing there talking with him, getting directions or orders or whatever it is he was doing. And uh, we we confronted this priest portal shuts yep. and he just starts kind of cackling and laughing at us and and, and instantly Grouthoof recognizes this room yeah he recognizes he's seen it. this before in a vision we've talked yep. about this vision before but to, do you want to give a rundown of what he he saw in this vision and kind of explain what exactly it meant yeah so he before if you've listened to the podcast he saw a vision of a portal opening and if i remember right it was three no four four people walking through this portal in this room but it wasn't this time when Grouthoof saw it it wasn't exactly how he remembered it because there wasn't anybody walking through this portal it was just a room he with a priest the room looking to the face from his vision yep. but this moment in time he did not recognize it wasn't yeah it wasn't that moment or at the very least there was thoughts from your guys that Maybe we're here to stop what was going to happen. Yeah. And there was confusion on, did it already happen? Are we going to stop the future from occurring? Uh, could we fail in the future that occurs? Like, what exactly? Because the visions that you guys are getting, that Groundhub is getting, you guys are putting it together right. as you're going, and the pieces of the puzzle start to fall in place. Right. But yeah, you saw you saw one character come out, an orc come out, and then you saw three other zombified characters follow him. And what exactly, for those people who maybe, uh, even if they have been following our podcast and the story times, uh, need a reminder, because it's been a while, what, yeah. what are those four characters from? Yeah, those four characters are from a one-shot night that we did where you kind of said, hey, this is something we're going to do because my brother is here, obviously. But we he decided that we were going to make these evil characters go through this almost video game-esque dungeon where whoever got the most points won. And my character was the one that won. He was an orc monk who ended up winning this battle. He became the leader of the other three. The other three were turned into these zombified... Cursed to cursed, follow yep, you as undead Cursed to follow servants. me as undead servants. And so we... Those characters were used to hunt down, basically, our characters or do something in this world. They were unleashed on this world to do whatever the bidding of the gods of the underworld wanted them to do. And so we know who they are our characters don't know our players do our characters don't know who they are so this is what we were trying to think we were preventing from happening Mm -hmm. it's been this it's been this funny back and forth because player wise you guys know you're eventually going to be fighting yeah oh yeah and you've been like oh gosh i know we built those characters so strong we got gave them nice equipment uh so you you're player wise you're fearing them but character wise you're like well we kind of get that this is a bad thing but we have no idea yeah, who these guys know. are yeah. so there's there's this more fear on the player side than the character side yeah of this oh yeah aspect. yeah and so that's what we thought we were either preventing from happening or whatever it was we thought was going to happen coming out of this room but that wasn't what was happening at this point in time he was talking to a face this cursed grotesque face through the portal and then all of a sudden the portal closes the priest looks at us, and uh, did he raise some things from the dead? Is yeah, that what he, he did raised, in the room? Yeah, he raised uh, skeletons from the dead. Uh, his There's two other priests in the room that yep. clearly were bad. They turn on you. This fight ensues, and 
The priest uh, starts to levitate yeah, up off starts, of the ground. Yeah, we had uh, a bunch of you guys run towards him like, let's take down the head priest. And he just kind of laughs. And as soon as one of you is about to get to him, he like starts levitating yeah. in the air. Which makes a lot of your attacks completely useless. Yeah, which is annoying for yeah. me as a rogue. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, did he cast protection from arrows on himself to stop a... Uh... No, he's, he paralyzed Mark's character, Magic yeah, Mark's yeah, character, yeah. Rix, so that he wasn't shooting arrows. But eventually, yeah. uh, after a couple javelins from our buddy Torque. Uh, he came down, falling to the ground. You beat the other. Well, priests. I think Rick's got a couple shots off on yeah. him first, and then it like because of initiative order, he then cast he's a, paralyzed. He's a on smart him. guy. Yeah. He's not a dumb monster. He's gonna take down the biggest yep. threats to him. And when he's floating in the air, it's clearly gonna yep. be the archer. Yep. So yeah, he focused a lot of his energy. Yep. On that. So then Torque took some javelins to him. He fell to the ground, and we started to kind of interrogate him a little bit because he wasn't dead necessarily but well, we healed tried him. to interrogate yeah him. <laughs> we tried to interrogate him we healed him a little bit so that he would start talking torque grappled him held him there so he couldn't do anything my guy's holding a knife up to a part of his body that he probably wouldn't want cut <laughs> off because he's just trying to intimidate him a little bit this guy's just cackling he's laughing he's like spitting at us and yeah. stuff like that he's just like, like kill me go yeah for it. go I'll for it that's, that's better than yeah that's better than anything you could do to me here on earth you know um so we took the ring from him uh, the ring had a, a symbol on yep, it. Yeah, it had a symbol on it. We didn't really recognize what the symbol was. It was a grotesque face, yep. which you guys put in two together. Yeah, like, put two and two probably together. probably the is, god that he yep. was talking this to. This is probably how he summons the god or creates portals or something like that. And I forget how it happened after that. I think Torque all of a sudden was just like, okay. You guys basically have, at this point, just talked in front of Torque. You're like, he's too dumb to understand yeah. what, what's going on. He he's asked a couple times, "What are you guys talking about?" He's like, "What are you guys talking about?" Yep. Um, if if even in that well. Yeah. Um, and you guys are just like, "Don't worry, Torque. We'll tell you later." Yeah. He goes over to the door and shuts the door and locks it. And there's this moment for I think some of you who have uh, had NPCs betray you guys before that you were like, "Oh crap." <laughs> well, my thought process was. My guy in the dungeon that we played was an orc. I was mm-hmm. like, was Torque seriously this guy the whole time? Like, this is just his alias, and that now the other good, now man. the other three are starting that to walk out really of the room. I, I was just like, that. oh crap! I was like, this is where the battle's gonna yeah. happen. I was like, this sucks. Yeah. But yeah, so Torque walks over to the door, and all of a sudden he turns around, and he's like, he's like super smart, Torque. It's like what? It's <laughs> he's like, like, guys, I'm not as dumb. Yeah, as he's you not think as I dumb am. as I think. Yeah, as <laughs> like, you think pro- I am. And you, I think you asked. You're like, wait. Is he talking in like complete sentences right now, or is that just you messing up? I'm like, nope. He's yeah, I was like, I was like, wait a minute. Are you? I was like, did you just forget that you were like the DM and you're supposed to do like NPC stupid voice yeah. or what? You know, you're like, nope. He's he's actually he's pretty smart. Totally, he's yeah, yeah, he's totally he's totally getting it. Um, so he walks over. He's like, okay, what the heck is really going on? And we explain to him we're on a mission for the gods. We're we got this key in this portal and we're doing all these things to make the key come out of this bat uh, this basin that's full of water and. We don't exactly know what's going to happen once we get this key through, but this is what we've been in charge to do. Uh, and he's kind of like, okay, that's good to know now. Yeah. You know? Uh, yeah, after some explaining, he's on your side. And then he was like, all right, what do we do about this ring, this priest? Yeah. Like, what do we do? And I, I went, I was like, okay, stay here. I'm going to go find Wesley. Wesley Wonders, the arcane magician that arcane magic isn't liked in your world quite yet. Uh, yeah. And I was like, okay. It's feared. Yeah. yeah. I was like, there's some magic going on here that Wesley Most should probably know about. Most wizards are secret. Yeah. At and... least in this area of the world right. that you're in. Right. And so you leave. I you leave the, the room. Ring. Take the ring. You have a run-in with some guards. Yeah. Yeah. And Just who right comes outside the door. to your, your rescue but Sir Patrick, uh, affectionately known by you guys as Sir, Sir Patrick, Patrick the, the Douche. douche. Yep. Um, he helps you out in this situation. He's like, guys, 
guards, like, he's higher up than him, he's a knight, he's like, go, you guys go somewhere else, like, go help with the battle, wherever he sent them, uh, and he says, you know, this guy just saved the king, we can trust him, but then he wanted to know what's going on, yeah, so he you had to, to kind of turn really around, on. go back in the room, you open the door, everybody's like, Wow, that wasn't long. And then Sir Patrick the Douche follows you in, and they're like, seriously, Kruger? Seriously. <laughs> I was like, well, what am I supposed to do? I can't fight this guy and kill him. Like, yeah. I'm not going to do that. And you and Sir Patrick saw the ring, so you had to kind of explain that to him. He yep. took the ring. He took the priest. Yeah. Uh, no, he didn't take the ring. He didn't. No, I still had the ring. Oh, yeah, you still had the ring. Yeah. He took the priest. Yep. He knew about the ring. Yeah, he knew about the and ring. And he basically said, uh, the king's going to call upon you. We know that we can, tr- you know, I'm sure you'll be fine. But we need to, you need to be questioned right. at this point because right. there's a lot happening yep. right now. Yep. So we went back after that. We went back to Wesley uh, because we were like, he probably knows the most about this ring and tell us what the heck's going on with and this. Wesley had a little interaction with Torque. Yeah, Wesley <laughs> had a little interaction with Torque. I don't really remember what happened with that, Wesley, though. Torque got there and Wesley's like, oh, Torque, good to see you. And he goes like, you guys, you know Torque? Oh, and yeah, he's yeah. like, oh, yeah, wow, what a coincidence that Torque was at the arena the same day you guys yeah, were signing yeah, yeah, up. that's right. Kind of like this... Uh, Okay, oh, this was Wesley. planned the whole time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he, I mean, they obviously know each other. We presented the ring to Wesley to say, hey, this is what we found. Do you know anything about this? And he took it. He's like, you know, I'd like to just hang on to this for a little while. I and can, well, you guys, went, we went into this, let's destroy it thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, We went yeah, into yeah, this right. big montage where he's casting fireballs, he's casting rays, and nothing destroys yeah, it. Yeah, the only that's going to destroy it is Mount Doom. Mm-hmm. That's the only thing that's going to destroy <laughs> this thing. Yeah. And so he's like, I can... I can keep this sacred. I can keep it locked up. I can put keep it somewhere. Secret, no one, no one will ever find it. Yep. Uh, and you guys are kind of like, ah, do we do this? And you guys rolled sense motive checks. Because uh, my character I rolled was thinking, sense motive checks, so you guys don't see them and tell you what you guys think. Yeah, my character was thinking, okay, this is really dark magic. Mm-hmm. Wesley is one of the first arcane magicians, or as it seems in this world. Not so sure we want him messing around with magic that he doesn't know anything about yet, and so it opens up a portal, right? To somewhere, right? To somewhere. And we All like, you know about this portal it opens yeah. to is you saw a terrible, 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 terrible yeah. face on the other side. Yeah, and I was like, I was thinking as a character, I was like, ah, I don't know if this is a good idea. And so you rolled a diplomacy or sense motive check sense motive. for us, and I think. You said me and Mark's character don't really, really know. think anything. We're like, eh, yeah, makes sense. Could go either Caleb's way. Caleb's character, Grouthoof, said, you know what? Maybe we should hang on to this he ring. Didn't, he didn't trust Wesley. Yeah, yeah, he didn't trust Wesley for whatever reason. So he was like, you know what? I can bring it to some priests of Celestian that I really, really trust, or some, some type of people that worship Celestian. He's like, I can bring it there. I can trust them. They'll hang on to it. It'll never. We'll never have to worry Wesley about it. Wesley wasn't too happy. About Wesley it. wasn't too to happy really about it. it. Yeah. Um, and the hard part for you guys as players is you're still unsure if Wes, if you guys, if Caleb rolled a crit one or like a nat twenty. Yeah. Uh, because you guys both didn't have any clue. Yeah. Uh, and so it's like, okay, either he really has a good way to protect it. Yeah. And we just missed out on that opportunity, or we made the right choice in protecting this ring. From possibly being like we we like Wesley, but like you said, could get curious, yep. uh, could fall into a, another wizard's hands eventually. Uh, so you either made the very right choice or the very wrong choice. In any case, the ring did not stay on your possession. Right, you we guys ended up got going called before to the, the king. king. Yeah, uh, he asked you questions. You guys with uh, the the other priest, they zone of truth them. Your story was backed up. 
Uh, but Sir Patrick knew about the ring, so the king's like, this ring, I need it. Yeah, yeah, and we were like, uh, you know what, we should probably hang on to it, we're gonna give it to the, the priests of Celestian, yeah. we can trust them. Like, and he had a, good, a pretty good point about that, because... He did not let you keep it. <laughs> yeah, he. What was his point? He, he just said, said like, well, well, if the priest, of, yeah, the priest if of Pelor yeah. got infiltrated, who's to say that your Celestian priest yeah. didn't either? Give it to me. I will keep it secret. Yeah, I will keep it safe. Yeah. He didn't say that, but yeah. I, and now, now my thought process is okay. This guy has no magical abilities that yeah. we know of. What's going to protect him from saying, "Hey, I'm curious about this portal." So there's the hard thing was at that point. What else could you do? Yeah, we couldn't do anything. Yep. Yeah, we couldn't do anything else about it at that point in time. So the ring is now with the king or whoever he has in charge of watching over this ring, keep guarding it. And from there, we got a message, correct? Somebody ran into the the priest's room, or the, the king's throne room. and Messenger said, ran as you guys yep. are walking out. Well, king gave you major knights, gave yep. you a manor, yep. gave us a, a stable. Yep. You're like, uh, I'm trying to start this Riders of Shemesh thing up, uh, which... Uh, now after the arena, you got this little chant going on that people know you guys by. Yep. Uh, but yeah, and so he was he was like, "Thank you for saving my life. Here's gold. Here's titles. Here's a mansion. Here's a here's a stable. Here's some servants to run your place." Like you guys were just taken pretty well care. Yep. Yeah, we were we were treated very very well. And so the messenger comes in and says, "Hey, Crowsford is being attacked, and the Crowsford is where we've been before. It's very close to the place where we have to go to deliver the goods for." the shrine or temple or whatever it is where put them in the hands, they burn yep. up, the water fills up. It's like right next door to where we Almost have to go. blocking your way if it's yeah. taken over. Yep. Otherwise, we'd have to try and climb up the mountains, <laughs> and that'd be very dangerous. We'd yep. have to roll really good climb checks and hope we don't fall and die. But so, Taken over by orcs of all yep, things. Yep, and so we have to go and take care of them. So I, we had a bunch of gold. I was like, how cool would that be for Kruor, the leader of the Riders of Shemesh, to have a griffin? Mm-hmm. So I got a griffin. You that's that's what I griffin. bought myself a griffin. And we, I, I don't remember if we did anything else in the city other than we, we bought a griffin. Caleb got another war horse. Mark, Rich I think. jumped on the Rich back of his on, war horse. On the back of his war horse. And you guys were off to go to the Battle of Crowsford. Yep. You have one more pit stop before we... Yep. We will not be talking about the Battle of Crowsford. That'll be part two. Yep, that'll you be, have one more that'll stop. Be next episode. You yep. added a little bit more to your forces. Yeah, I wanted to make ourselves a little bit stronger, and I went back to the dwarves that we ran into. Now, nobody in Shemesh knows about the dwarves yet. And I said, look, guys, if the orcs take over, they're going to find you eventually. If you want this to be your home, you probably should come and help us a little bit. If you care anything about this land more than just the resources in the ground. Because if they find you, you're not going to get the resources in the ground. And you will be vastly outnumbered if it's the remaining orcs versus just you here in the mountains. And so they, I don't know if it was just they did really poorly on their roles or whatever (laughs) it was. Because I didn't do that great on my (laughs) roles either. I think they just did really poorly on their roles, and they decided to come with us. And so now we have these boar, the boar, boar riding, riding, right? Boar yeah. riding dwarves that are coming with us to the Battle of Crow's Fort. We meet back up at the the fork in the road, and everybody's kind of like, "Who are these people? Where have they been?" <laughs> You're almost just like, "No time to no the Crow's Fort. We'll the talk about it. Let's go." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, <laughs> we got to the, help. <laughs> yeah, we got the dwarves on our side, and from there we headed off to the Crow's Fort, and we'll pick the story back up. Next time, part two. Yep. I'm starving. We ain't had nothing but maggoty bread for three stinking days. Why can't we have some meat? 
So today on The Meet, we are joined by author J.M. Perkins, and he has quite a list of accomplishments that he has that I'm just going to talk about here for a second. Uh, he is an author that has written 20 short stories and has used two successful Kickstarter campaigns to publish his own work. Uh, and you have how many article or how many novels out right now? Do you have just one, J.M.? Uh, just the one. Just the one, okay. And I, just quick uh, clarification, I've had 20 short stories published. I've published, written okay. a few more. Okay. Most of which are terrible and they'll never be. Uh, <laughs> All right, so, so being 20 short stories published, uh, as well as he is currently working on different different RPG type stuff. He works for Misfit Studios as a contract writer and also is a columnist at the magazine, the online magazine Tribality, which has had a lot yeah. of success and you've had a lot of people pointed your way through that web or through that magazine as well so congratulations on that and your articles there what are the two articles that you write system agnostic and what is the other one yeah the two columns that i do are one is called system agnostic and the other one is called survivalist gaming okay Uh, system agnostic is me creating a setting or a toy or a monster that can be used in a bunch of different settings and uh, systems and then survivalist gaming is about the intersection between survivalism and gaming yeah which is why you're here today. We're going to talk about survivalism yes. and horror combined into one, kind of talking about both, and then how do we how do we bring those both back together in the end? So, John, why don't we why don't we start out and talk a little bit about your background with survivalist gaming? How did that all come about? Right. So, as you mentioned, I'm writing a couple columnists columns for Tribality uh, with some great company. I mean, you guys had Rich Howard on here a couple yeah. weeks ago. Yeah, awesome. Dear friend, Pleasure. amazing writer, and just brilliant guy. Yeah. He had pinched me writing for this website, and we were talking about maybe what I could write. One of the things I pitched was this column of survivalist gaming. And the reason I was going to do that is because I was raised by people who were preparing for the end of the world. Okay. And so that was kind of a starting place for me in my life. Okay. And that has influenced me in a lot of ways. And so I thought it might be interesting to do a look at kind of where some of those mindsets and some of those things intersect with gaming. So I pitched to them. Uh, they liked it. And I've been writing the column for about two months now. Awesome. That's awesome. And so you also, besides those columns, you also have a little bit of a writing background. Why don't you explain to us a little bit about your writing background and how you kind of got started out and where your inspiration comes from? Oh, yeah. Um, So I've been writing prose fiction since I was about 18 and selling it since a couple years after that. I would say most of what I wrote when I'm not writing gaming stuff is action horror. Okay. Uh, I love stories about people killing monsters and vice versa. So I thought that was, you know, natural progression goes into gaming. Very typical. I think a lot of people like to hear that type of writing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, very much. And and honestly, it's our oldest stories. Right. You talk about Beowulf or Gilgamesh, and these are stories of adventurers or superheroes going around clobbering monsters. Yeah. Uh, Those are the stories that we will probably be telling forever. Yeah. Yeah. The Iliad, the Odyssey, stuff like that, too. Yeah, it's all about that type of stuff. Oh, yeah. Definitely. So I think it's I'm in a good legacy. And yeah. if I'm being honest, it's just because when I was younger, I loved X-Files, right? right. right. Oh, yeah. That was totally my yeah. jam. Ended too soon, as I hear, right? Everybody thinks it ended a little too soon? Uh, you know, I think with X-Files is they eventually started drowning in their own lore. Okay. And it was one of those things where you do episodic TV and you throw stuff out and you see what sticks to the wall. And it becomes very difficult to reconcile it all. But, you know, that's what I think happened. Sure, sure. So what and now is... we'll both get tons of angry fan letters, I'm sure. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> how uh, dare you say about X-Files? Yeah, how dare you? All the, 
Yeah, all the people from the 90s are, are screaming at us right now. <laughs> uh, hey, haven't you heard? 90s are big right now. They are. They are. Dude, we're, we're 90s kids. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So mm-hmm. you also write some fiction as well. You have 20 short stories published. Um, you are mm-hmm. also on Public Radio International, which you won a contest with them, correct? A couple, I did. I a did. little while I, ago? Mm-hmm. I entered a short fiction story contest called Three Minute Futures, where you had to create a plausible future story um, that would be in three minutes of radio audio. And if you got picked, uh, they would do a full cast um, production of the story. So I actually won that cost- contest. So Which my is story really was good, on. too. It's, re- it's really good sounding, too, the way they oh, went about you. making it. Yeah, it was, it was really Oh, well yeah. Done. Well, my my little name dropping would be this is uh, uh, in the old Star Trek The Next Generation, there was Dr. Crusher. Okay. Um, that the woman who played that character, she actually runs a theater company that did the production of oh, really? Social Scene Alert. That's the story really for that. Cool. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah, so that's that's how I'm so important and awesome. Is, you know, <laughs> four degrees of separation. Yeah, from, right. You know, it's second from string, a, uh, from a Star Trek character. We are not yeah. worthy. Yeah, right, right. Uh, you also have a novel out uh, called Chemo, correct? Uh, that's correct. How I Learned to Kill. And you also have a short story collection called Love, Werewolves, and Algorithms Out, which also was really good, by the way. Uh, and if you guys are interested at all in checking out JM's work, you can go on Kindle and search uh, Love, Werewolves, and Algorithms. It's two ninety nine on there right now. It's phenomenal. It's a good read. It takes. It took me about hour and a half, two hours to read, and it was the best two ninety nine I've spent in the past month. So go out there, pick that up for yourselves. Uh, JM would be very happy if you did that. I would, and you guys want people to see it listening, but I'm blushing right now because that was, <laughs> that was a very nice compliment. I'm blushing right now too. Chris, you're such a fan. I hey, love it. I, I like to read this is stuff. awesome. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, now that we've loved each other, let's yeah, get right, fucked up right, horrible right. things and yep. horrible uh, creatures doing horrible things to people. Yeah. So when you guys asked me beyond, um, you had asked, or you said you were most interested in me talking about survival and horror. Right. Yeah. So I think they are separate, and we'll definitely get into them separately. Yep. But to begin with, I wanted to talk a little bit about you know the ways that they're similar and have things in common. Cool. I think some of the things that link them are in both. Oftentimes, you have a concern with eating and biological functions in ways that we're maybe not completely comfortable with. And also, there is stories that are inherently both survivalist and horrific. You know, Mm -hmm. zombies being the classic survival horror story. Which is huge now. Yeah. Yeah, Taking off with Walking Dead. Yeah. About the past uh, 10 years, zombies have really been taking over the market as far as There's vampires, now it's zombies. Yeah. Well, right. And, you know, post-apocalyptic stories have been popular forever. Yeah. Probably since way before the time machine. But I would say the time machine is one of the ones that sticks out most for me as being early. I love that. But of late... Oh, Time Machine's a great novel. Oh, so good. But of late, so many of the survival stories we're telling, so many of the post-apocalyptic stories we're telling are, you know, zombie-related. And so I think that's really interesting, and it's something I think about a lot, and it's something we'll get into a little bit. And yeah, and and what's fascinating to me too about the survival zombie story in particular is just how much it, with a wink and a nudge, nudge can kind of get into real behavior. Like a famous ammunition manufacturer made like zombie branded ammo as a joke, and they just cannot keep it in stock. Right. And right. I think we all know friends that they will put together. Um, what you might call emergency kits or earthquake preparedness kits in California. <laughs> well, they had a they had a show for a while that was all about zombie proofing your home. It didn't last very yeah. long, but there was a couple of episodes that That's were awesome. Specific. I need to check that out. Yeah, it's it's great. I don't know where you yeah. can find it, but it was it was specific to these people had a business that was all about going in and zombie 
zombie proofing their home. It was it was awesome wow. to watch, but I was like, man, there are some people that are ready for the zombie apocalypse now. You know. <laughs> well, and the other thing too, I'll bring up. We were talking about early stories and action horror being that. In Gilgamesh, there's actually a zombie apocalypse threatened. Okay. Um, at one point in the Epic of Gilgamesh, there's a goddess who's really upset with Gilgamesh. And she's demanding that the other gods give her this monster called the Bull of Heaven. And they don't want to give it to her because she's crazy. And As most goddesses are. Yeah. Well, Ishtar especially. <laughs> not someone who you want on the bad side. Anyway. Right, right. But what she does is she literally tells the other gods, if you don't do this... I will go down to the underworld and I will tear off the gates of the underworld and the dead will come out and the dead will outnumber the living and the dead will eat the living. And this is like our oldest yeah. you know, work of fiction. Yep. And there's a zombie apocalypse threatened in it. That's cool. So, yeah, I'm fascinated by the pedigree of this. I'm fascinated by how long it's been around. I'm fascinated at the intersections between, you know, concern about biological functions. And the other thing, too, that I think... Uh, is a huge commonality between the both is both in horror and in a lot of post-apocalyptic stories you have this notion of transgression mm -hmm. so many horror stories you know the people did something wrong they have you know sinned if you want to put it in the moralistic framework right and i think that's often you know the underpinning of a post-apocalyptic story is that we as a society have sinned and yeah, then, right you know, cross now... some sort of line and because of it society falls yeah. and we're now being judged because of that yeah yeah right uh, just to break it down i would say you could argue that what a survivalist story is to society at large a horror story is to an individual or a small group of people okay uh something's gone wrong you are on your own and terrible things are happening and it might well be because you've transgressed or sinned so a lot of horror stories and this happens in gaming a lot i think especially is one of the central conceits of dnd and so many games after it is that the natural world is kind of horrifying and there's this darkness that is encircling civilization and is pushing back against it okay. and this is this is you know this concern that runs through a lot of horror stories and definitely definitely in D, &D. and and also uh will come up in survival stories. Um, what was a good example of the, I think it was called The Grey, you know, that whole movie about... Oh, yeah, with uh, Liam Neeson and, and, yeah. And it's not something we have to deal with as much as moderns because we feel like we have totally gotten past nature. But I think that feeling is also part of the reason we're really worried about the apocalypse because we feel like maybe that confidence is not as solid as it should be. Yeah. And the other thing, too, is... With horror, you can have monsters, and you can also just have people as monsters, and that's definitely something that comes up in survival stories. Yeah. Depending on you know how cynical the author is, you know how monstrous the people are going to be. Right, and that that makes me think of The Walking Dead too, where it's like you have the monsters as the zombies, but then you also season to season have these new villains who are also quote unquote monsters in and of themselves, just by the way they handle yeah. themselves and the way that they go after the main group of the party just to harm them. You well, know, one of so. the taglines of the show was, fear the dead, fight the living. And right. I think that speaks to it. Like, the true villains in the show aren't the zombies. They're kind of this. I mean, they're mindless. They're in the way. They can kill you. But the things you really got to watch out for is the people who are messed up. Like, if you've been watching it currently, the termites were awful. And I know we're going we're gonna to be going into more and more terrible stuff in the show, but... Yeah, and then like Book of Eli, it shows the same thing with people, uh, and then you've got religion in that too. This person is twisting religion and 
turning it to be something to give him power and it shows yeah i think i like it when an author or the storyteller goes full um uh, very cynical about the way people are going to be and tries to go this is their true nature and make making the heroes of the story so much more so heroes because they're the they're like the only ones who stay away from that dark side of human nature the world's gone down the toilet and now so has society and so has human decency it's gone (laughs) because it almost seems like in apocalypse it'd be like everybody might come together for the greater good for a little while but when things start running out and it really becomes like okay am i going to live most people would probably come to the point where they're like i need to fend for myself or my family or my small group of friends over the collective group of everybody that's a part of of the world that you're in so i think that's that's a really good point is there's not just the monsters that you have to worry about if there are monsters in the pole if you're doing a survivalist horror campaign it's also the people that can be the quote-unquote monsters within the world that you're running which can be even scarier because it could be one of those things where it's like somebody's like hey i'm your friend now i'm not you're going to die because i need to survive yeah we talked about um we had our villains episode and uh you play a, a a campaign like this and we'll use the zombie trope but like you play a zombie campaign, world's overrun by zombies. Sure, your players can hate zombies and be like, oh, I love fighting zombies because I want to kill them, I want to take them out. But you can only get so far as, like, hating zombies. But you put a NPC in that's a villain that has it out for your characters who tries to outwit them and steal stuff from them and kill them, whatever it is, that hatred's going to become so much more real because that's somebody who can actually control their actions and that's right. that's a much bigger villain right well and and that's i think how we tie back to the tragedy right so right. often the interest of the villain is how did they get that way right and most of them didn't start off you know punching out a card with the guild of calamity's intent and you know uh cackling right they have reasons for what they're doing yep and that can make them all the more monstrous yep so, so next, monsters. We'll talk about monsters within a post-apocalyptic world. Um, John, what do you what do you think as far as we'll, we'll call it monster talk? What do you what do you what would you say about monsters within a post-apocalyptic world? What would I say about monsters within a post-apocalyptic world? Uh, well, I, I think that they are interesting background radiation, and they give a shape to the survival concerns that the uh, the characters would have, um, both in a game world or in any fictional world. Uh, I think one of the things I really love about D&D is just how many monsters there are and how many, if used the right way, could cause the apocalypse. Like one of my favorite examples is, so depending on what edition you're playing, in D&D there's, there's shadows or shades, right? Right. Mm-hmm. And they can create new shadows or shades within, again, it depends on your edition, between 1d4 one, one rounds. Right. If you had one of those and just had it attack a commoner village in the middle of the night and attack people while they're sleeping and do strength drain, it's going to double its number. And then it can oh, control yeah. those shadows it creates and that doubles its number. Like within, I did the math one time, within like five minutes, you go from one shade to a couple hundred and then <laughs> have several thousand. And then you have, you know, you just go beyond, they can move right through walls. If people are sleeping, they don't even have a chance to fight back. Not that right. they can fight back against the tutorial. And so I just love in D&D, all these monsters with interesting abilities, you know, can be an apocalypse unto themselves. Right. And 
Uh, the other thing too I'll say about D and D, and we're talking about monsters, is a big another big conceit in most editions is that you're living, you're already in a post-apocalyptic world. You know, the, right. there were ancients, there were other peoples, and terrible things happened to them. Right. And sometimes you dig through their ruins, and sometimes you uncover the things that happened to them. Sometimes you're dealing with the the fallout of that. So yeah, I, I think that monsters and D and D and post apocalypse go together so well in D and D. Yeah, I I like the idea of especially in you know you think post apocalyptic. A lot of the times, even in in zombie post apocalyptic stories, it's there's a sickness or there's a uh, infestation of some sort of virus and it spreads and with zombies it's a lot of times it's a virus and it's causing monsters and spreading and i think that's one of the best parts about a monster um, being part of a a post-apocalyptic world and being a cause of an apocalypse is because there's some spreading attribute to them and it doesn't have to be uh, just uh, zombies and uh, an actual sickness, but one of my favorite monsters in in the D and D world is possibly my favorite monster is mind flayers. I love illithids, and mm-hmm. in my in my world in my campaign we've come up against illithids before, and they're always uh, trying to enslave others and gain in power. And I was thinking about. Uh, this episode and thinking well it'd be crazy if what if that actually happened and now I'm like thinking I would like to do a campaign and we've done alternate timeline stuff in my world but what if the mind flurs did take over and they gained power and we played in a futuristic apocalyptic post-apocalyptic world where mind flayers have like taken over and there's little sects of human humans who have like eluded them for years but now the world is just Mind flare rulers and hundred a thousands hundreds of thousands of thralls, you know the slaves of mind right. flare is all over. But it's that aspect of monsters getting out of hand, however it is, and just spreading and spreading until you can't hold back the gate any longer. They're there. Uh, I really like that, and I actually have an idea that I think someone could totally use in their campaign. Is when you set up your big bad, whether it's mind flares or whatever have you. I think it might be really compelling to have your characters have some reason to visit the future wherein they see the results of them not stopping whatever catastrophe they were supposed to uh, stop. Um, Potentially, like, say you have a magic item that has to age like a thousand years. Right. So what they do is they set up this process and then they go to harvest it a thousand years hence. And they see what's happened with the Mind Flayers. Uh, Very much that X-Men Days of Future Past thing. And, and that's, I think, one of the something that I really like about monsters, and I think something that I try to keep in mind when I do GM, is have you guys ever heard of the phrase Chekhov's gun? No, I have not. It's a storytelling trope, and basically it says that a gun on the mantle in the first act has to go off in the third act. Okay. So what, what I take that for me is if you're going to present the Mind Flayers um, as this huge threat, you have to show why that is. And showing what happens to the world without the heroes triumphing, I think, can be very effective. It establishes the states, and it gives them a chance to maybe briefly, maybe permanently play in a vastly different world. Yeah, and yeah, and even we've we've done this in our campaigns before, but and that doesn't mean you can't play hundreds of years after a takeover or whatever. But uh, you can start off your campaign by doing a cinematic type uh, explanation of the story, or even. 
you have you meet the old man who's part of your clan or group of people who's eluded the mind flayers and he tells you about a time long ago when the mind flayers took over or maybe his grandpappy told him or whatever it is uh yeah i Mm -hmm. I think that's a really good point and i was just listening to the uh dungeons and dragons podcast that wizards puts out and they had Mm -hmm. scott kurtz i think is the guy's name that plays binwin bronze bottom uh and he was (laughs) he was talking about how he loves to gm and in one of his campaigns he had it where the characters would travel forward in time and go to like different dimensional spaces to figure out and do the campaigns and he said mm-hmm. at one point in time he shot them into the future like 25 or 30 years or something to find these magical items. And it was this moment where they found these magical items on these dead corpses that were like burned or had had the life sucked out of them. And they slowly realized like, it was them. oh crap, it's them. <laughs> and then they had this thought, well, how many times have we been doing this over and over and over trying to figure out how to solve this apocalypse, you know? So I think mm-hmm. that's brilliant. It's just like, it kind of reminds me of that movie. What was that movie that just came out um, with Tom Cruise? Uh, Hot oh, Tub uh, Time Machine? No, not. Is it Edge of Tomorrow? Edge of Tomorrow, where they're yeah, constantly yeah, yeah, doing the yep. same thing over and over and over again, and they realize it. I thought that was, and you could incorporate that so easily into a horror type setting where it's like yep. you see what happens over and over and over in the future. Right. Okay. A an action-packed Groundhog's Day. Yes, yeah, right, exactly. right, right, <laughs> right. Yeah, and and I think this is kind of a bigger bigger thing to make sure you do of keeping your monsters scary, yes, which I think right. can be very hard. One of the things I think is very true in horror, and it definitely comes up with gaming, is the concept that familiarity is not scary, right? right. So if you're familiar with the capabilities of trolls, they represent a tactical problem. They don't represent something that is going to make you feel your character's fear. Right. Right. And so often, you know, you need a change of perspective. You need a change of the feeling of stakes to to reignite that feeling of, oh, yes, it's very important that we kill monsters and it's very important that we do these things because these things are terrifying and we understand the consequences if we don't triumph in the situation. Right. Yeah. Right. You you have a, a world taken over by orcs. Well, every time I place orcs, even with level one characters, my players are like, chop its head off. They run into battle straight away. Right. Even though they forget at level one, those orcs can hit and kill you in one hit, especially right. if they crit. Uh, but yeah, like <laughs> I we just fought some trolls recently, I think, in our campaigns. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, it bothers me to no end when a player metagames and it's like oh we have to use fire and acid like yeah. but it, it there is a familiarity with a lot of monsters that that was actually even, me that said that was, in your campaign. was it you yeah <laughs> <laughs> bothers me to know it doesn't matter who it is drives me crazy you some people yeah, yeah right <laughs> and here's the thing chris you actually have a reason to read the monsters right, manual right. Not everybody in our group does, except for they want to be the best killing machine. So, uh, but yeah, I I think that an unfamiliarity with creatures is way better. Like we we just had it speaking again. We with uh, an example for one of my campaigns, we just went up against uh, monsters in a arena battle, and you guys fought displacer beasts. I didn't tell you guys what their name was. I just said, here's what they look like. And I know a couple of you guys are like, oh, what are these? I've seen these before, but we've never fought them before. Yeah. And that element of, like, you guys were hitting, but not hitting. And you guys were like, oh, we might lose this. <laughs> like, yeah. But you didn't know why. And it was starting to, you know, get some of you, some of the players of the group who are like, but I know every monster stat. A little bit more frightened for their characters' lives. And uh, that is definitely 
that definitely just with stats and stuff like that that adds to it being frightening in fact sometimes unfortunately that might be the only way that you can scare some of your players is by putting their players their player characters at risk oh, very much so and and i think in general and again it depends on what kind of game you want to play in general to keep your monsters monstrous don't say you three see three kobolds mm-hmm. see you three Describe you think them. you see three scaled creatures but they're hiding really well in the shadows yes. and you're not sure yes I, I agree with that quite often. I've I've done that before, and I've had players go, but I knew what that was. Why couldn't you just tell me? And I would say, well, your character had no has never encountered those before, and so I knew with time you'd figure it out, and then I'd call it what it is. But uh, it is it adds to it too. It places it in their minds and gets them to picture it, and and even if you change it, change up what they look like a little bit, you know, throw them off track, but. Yeah. yeah, the unfamiliarity is a really, really good point. I think also power in in monsters, and uh, maybe if it's a creature that they have come into contact with before, but it didn't go so well for them, and so they, your players knowing this is something that I don't want to mess with, well, if now that's been a creature that has spread and is part of this apocalyptic world, like, that's frightening for players, just going, I, I know that that's not something I want to mess with. Call of Cthulhu, the game, is very different than D&D because you see a monster, you don't run into battle. Most of the time you run away from battle and go, I can't fight it, I can't fight it. Like, doing, a, <laughs> you can do a D&D campaign like that in a horror uh, survivalist story and make monsters. And I think you want to start off your campaign and let, let the feeling of the game be told to your players, hey... <laughs> There's going to be things in this game that you're not going to be able to fight. And you right. should roleplay with that and have a great time with that and make your character scared of those things. Because especially when we start off, you're not going to be able to kill it. Right. Uh, if you don't mind a small pitch for a project I worked on. Um, so my last Kickstarter was for the Adequate Commoner, okay. which was all about playing commoner characters and how to be effective with that limitation and why that's interesting and compelling. And you, I think, hit the nail right on the head with breaking that accord with your players that you will generally be able to handle everything you encounter. Mm-hmm. I think that is such a, an important part of a lot of games, and it's a lot of fun, but I think it's something that makes horror almost impossible, yeah. uh, or at least very, very difficult. If you generally feel confident that you'll be able to handle the challenges you encounter, you it, it puts you in a different mindset and it might be great for heroic fantasy but i think heroic fantasy is the wrong tone if you want to focus on you know the concerns about survival and definitely if you want to focus on the you know the horror the feeling of horror right. and i will say too even if you do want a standard heroic fantasy game if you manage to occasionally insert you know notes of horror or notes of you know the survival concerns I think that only makes the heroic fantasy fantasy feel all that more heroic. Yeah, and I think one way too that you could do that is I I've been reading through the uh, I've been listening to because I, I I like to listen and work at the same time. I've been listening to the White Plume book uh, by Paul Kidd. I don't know if you're familiar with that one at all, but I'm he, not. He uh, he has this whole horror idea when they go into this big mountain. It's controlled by this wizard who has this labyrinth going on, and he creates all of these elements of like okay i don't he adds some slime and it's like 
like green slime that just eats like everything that it touches you know and he goes he has one room that you walk through the door and it's like all magic items the magic ceases to exist on the item anymore like so one person went through with a a light around their neck and the light went out and they're just in this pitch black room and so i think even adding like darkness into a campaign like something like that darkness instantly breeds horror within people it's just like okay i can't see what's going on now oh like, yeah we all remember as kids flicking the lights off and running into a room as fast as we could because there's just mm-hmm. something about darkness that just tends to breed this like okay there's something creepy about this place what the heck is going on right yeah. now and even oh, going yeah. back to the players that are all about how you gotta scare them is you gotta throw in like stuff that puts their characters in danger like darkness even for a character with dark vision is a hindrance like it's always a hindrance and whenever we go into a dungeon and i say it's pitch black in there it's totally dark somebody's got to pull out a torch you always get everybody's looking around like i don't want to be the one holding the torch in my one hand i want to have all my weapons (laughs) out like like you do Mm -hmm. it you do it and then eventually maybe the druid just goes all right here's a light (laughs) (laughs) after all the arguing of 10 minutes like oh guys were you just talking about light i can cast it I'm not talking about you, Caleb. Yeah. Yes, I am. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's. I think darkness is a, is a really good thing also to be used. And creatures that, monsters that thrive in the dark as well, and it's not a hindrance to mm-hmm. them, but they that's where they're the strongest and the most comfortable. Oh, very much so. Well, and you brought the issue of every survival and horror concern that you can have as a character. There's probably a spell or magic item that takes care of it. Right. So you're worried about starvation. There's plenty of magic and some magic items that, you know, mean that you won't starve. You're worried about being in pitch darkness. There's light spells, there's torches, and then there's, you know, daylight later levels. Right, right. And that's great because I think that it can be very... Again, you have to figure out the right kind of game for you and your players. Right. And if you don't want to be bogged down and figuring out, okay, I need to carry this much food so I don't starve out in the desert, don't. It's not fun for you. Right. But I think that that can make very compelling gameplay, and it takes looking at the system and understanding, oh, these are the parts I do want to focus more on, and here's how the magic won't save them. Like that magicless room where, you know, the light spell went out. Yeah. I think that's even a good point to bring up is... and the apocalyptic setting in a D&D world especially can have a lot of the magic tones to it and what is magic different in your world than this maybe it's more scarce are there health potions now is there nobody to make health potions a world without health potions that's scary are there i even wrote down like are are there clerics in this right. world still in my world storyline there's a part uh, in the timeline that the gods, they completely leave. They have a battle, they have a, a war together, and they pretty much use the world as a battleground, which makes mortals be like, these guys aren't as great as we thought they were. And then there's this part that they decide, all right, we need to call a truce, and they all leave. And to in god time, it's like, oh, we were only gone for an hour. In the world's time, it's like they've been gone for years and so mm-hmm. clerics, no more power, no more resurrection, none of that. Like unless it's arcane and stuff. And how has that changed, making it even scarier? Do you tell your players no clerics allowed, no healing potions? Like you yeah. have to rest when you get hurt. No clerics, no healing potions. That that orc now is way more scary <laughs> than mm-hmm. any monster you use. We've been talking about like how do you make uh, a a campaign scary for your players, especially with, you know trying to break loose of 
that the chains of I can beat everything, I can do this, I can do that. My character is awesome, and of course you want your players to think their characters are awesome, right. and uh, you want them to be invested in their character, and you want them to be afraid for their life, uh, because without that, there's a horror slash survival campaign is not going to be as fun for them or for you as a DM. But I think mm-hmm. oh, one way you could accomplish this as well is by starting off your characters and saying, hey guys, you're not guys who have gone out and killed a horde of orcs. You're not yeah. guys who have gone out and slayed a dragon, uh, which we've talked about this before, but yeah. level one shouldn't be that anyway. <laughs> mm-hmm. However, like there are a lot of players that come with level one characters that say, I have slayed a red dragon and have it, <laughs> you know, whatever it is. But start off your characters and say, you know, you are all farmers you're all you're a blacksmith you're a farmer you live in a town or uh, you know in a post-apocalyptic world you live in a settlement that's been rebuilt or whatever and you're really nobody and you know then they can decide whatever call to action they choose a class they start collecting weapons which i think in in a post-apocalyptic world, are they more? Are there more weapons, or are there less weapons? Because you have to people make have, your own. Yeah, have yeah. have they been destroyed? Or what I think is probably more plausible is the bad people or good people, depending, have hoarded them up now, and so the powerful control all the weapons and dispersal mm-hmm. of them. But uh, however you get to the point where you start adventuring, like if you set up it up with your players and get them excited and explain how it could be fun. Uh, you guys have never fought monsters before in any sense. In fact, you mm-hmm. live in a world where you are pretty much, you just want to survive, you don't want to get in battles, and whatever it is that calls them to action, family's killed, town is overrun, they have to move, they have to protect people, whatever it is. Almost make it be a forced, forced into the job of hero. And I think that's right. a good way to set the mentality of, guys, you guys shouldn't be rushing into battle like it's every other day. Right. Right. And and I think you brought up a really good point that you really have to manage expectations with your players. Because if you're going to throw in a scary, unkillable monster, but they are expecting that every every monster, every challenge will be appropriately suited to them. But uh, to your point, definitely reach an accord with your players. Set expectation, manage expectation, know what your players will be down for. Because you can change it up with the right players, but at the same time, if people think they're getting one kind of game and you want to make it a different kind of game, it, it can be less fun for everyone. Yeah. And the other thing, too, we brought up, it can be very scary and very effective to have powers not work. Or if you yeah. make a cleric and your god dies, it's a very apocalyptic scenario. Yeah. Right. But at the same time, you have to manage that because no one likes to build a character and then be, oh, that thing that you are supposed to do well, you can't do that. So it's a it's a very delicate balance. I think it's one of the things that make D and D and tabletop so compelling is that we have humans as GMs that can walk that very fine line in a way that you just can't have that nuance as well when it comes to video games, which I love. Just of that, you right. know this player, and you know he will be okay with you killing his god, and he has to deal with his apocalyptic world. And versus another player, would not have fun with that at all. Yeah, and I think I think that's a great point, and we've brought that up before. Is you know we can give advice here on this podcast, but we don't know you know you the listener, we don't know your group. That's that's your job. That's you know your. Uh, you know your group way better than we do, so you sh- you have to feel out 
is this something and a lot of times i would just say just ask your players and you can you can make your pitch sell it because sometimes players don't want to try something out then they try it and they love it uh and maybe that's what you just say if they even if they don't seem excited say try it out with me like let's let's try this out if you don't like it we'll make it a short one shot or whatever uh but try it out but yeah know your group and especially like uh, John was saying, if if you're not going to have clerics in your world, if clerics are more just, uh, now they're priests without power, uh, if there are any, in fact, most people see them as crazy because the gods have left or they've died or whatever right. it is, and they don't have power, make sure you tell your players that there's not going to be clerics before that player goes out and makes a cleric, writes up all the stats and stuff, and comes to the table and goes, oh, by the way, guys, we're starting tonight, I've decided there's no clerics in this world, because... I think anybody, rightfully so, would be pretty upset by that. And yeah, make sure they understand if you're going to have specific, you can't be this or you can't do this. Make sure they understand that going in so they know what they're getting into as a game. I think right. a lot of the times if you if you explain that stuff, you know, you don't have to give away all the twists and the turns of your campaign and all the like great plot hooks. But I think explaining to your players a little bit of backstory, a little bit of here's what we're doing it's actually beneficial because it gets them excited about what they're doing and they can then build their characters knowing the world that they're going to be playing in and the time period and the the genre. And I think that's a good thing. Collaboration is king, man. Yes. You know, I, I wrote up a dungeon that one of the concerns I had with it is there's a hundred of sustenance in this dungeon. And my concern was, depending on what level you ran it, you know, giving characters a hundred rings of sustenance, that might be way too much treasure. <laughs> right, right. right. And so one of the suggestions on how to deal with that was just, oh, when they get them out of the dungeons, they don't work. And I thought, eh, you could do that. But I am much, I'm much more up for, don't say it doesn't work for them. Say it works, but not in the way they want it to. Sure. It works, but they don't want it to work suddenly because <laughs> there's consequences of it working. Don't just say, oh, it worked for your enemies, but it won't work for you. Because I think that's such a cop-out. And, and I think that GMs can and should do better. Was this the dungeon, the 100 saved one? Is that the one that you're talking about, the rings yeah. that came out? Yeah, I think they that in that dungeon you, you wrote about those rings, how they were given to people in this kind of apocalyptic setting. And eventually the people that are still, I think they were still wearing them, right? Are actually yep. dead walking around. Like the people see what these rings did to them. And it's kind of one of those things that's like, yeah, you can have these. You probably won't want to use them, seeing how these people turned out in the end. You know, so it's. Right. I think that's. Yeah, I think that's that's a that's a good thing to do with with those types of magical items that you were talking about. Yeah, for sure. Oh, very much so. And and that's one of the joys of playing D and D is the, there's all these magical items, and they're so ripe for things going wrong, things not working the way they're supposed to, curses, unexpected consequences. Yeah. And I think something that doesn't get explored enough in D and D is the magic. Right. Generally, the way it works in D&D is using magic is without cost right. to anyone. It's just something that people can do. Right. And I always thought there's a lot of really interesting stories to be told and, and to be told around a D&D table about what is the cost of magic. Well, because most times we don't focus on that there's like a material portion to doing right. some spells. Mm-hmm. That in an apocalyptic world, you might not be able to go to the local magic shop or, or mages guild to replenish your 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 stock right. of those things. Yeah, right. And and again, if those if that kind of bookkeeping doesn't interest you and your players, don't do it. Right. But that can be such a strong 
you know, story hook. And I think that in the end is the draw of the survivalist gaming is so many of the things that you take for granted suddenly become major concerns for the characters and can drive stories, can get people into and out of trouble in unexpected ways and, and just open it up for a different kind of fun and a different kind of story. Well, I think of things like food and water, where it's like there are a lot of exhaustion rules that people don't focus on with food mm-hmm. and water. We're just simply like, okay, you're going to eat and you're going to drink and you're going to get the sleep that you need for the most right. part. But that could also be something that's like, hey, we're going to explore exhaustion rules that we never deal with. And that in right. and of itself makes people's mindset change to, holy crap, this, yeah. <laughs> this sucks. <laughs> like, I got to get... I gotta get food. I gotta get water. Like these are actually essential things that I don't normally think about in a D and D world. Right. Uh, a huge example in the games I've played is carry weight, right? Like how oh, often yeah. is carry weight just hand waved away, and and rightly so if that's what you want to do. But when you have to think about every pound your character is carrying, especially if you're a wizard or something, I think it can add a lot of verisimilitude to the game. It can mm-hmm. really plug you into the game world, and also it I think it's a great opportunity to collaborate with the other characters. Because you can't right. carry all your stuff. So Figure out who carries what and how to make sure you have access to it at a critical moment. Right. Yeah, we just started playing in this this campaign that I'm doing right now. We started playing with weight. We never wanted to do it before. In fact, I would say for newbie DMs, wave it because yeah. you got so much on your plate to deal with. We kind of reached a point where we're just like, guys, you want to try out weight? I kind of want to try out weight, and it's definitely been a problem for some players like one of our players is playing a a lapid which is a rabbit folk and not only is he small is he not that strong but part of his racial thing is that he has like weak bones and so he can't his like carry capacity is even less than it normally would be and that's mm-hmm. it's like he comes across an item and i'm like oh guys do you want to take this loot and you guys all kind of look at each other and you're like is it a, is it something we can really use because if not we're and, and donkeys become really important then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Gotta protect those donkeys. Without weight, yeah. donkeys are useless. Like, why would you ever yeah. buy buy a donkey? And uh, a strong guy joins the group, and all of a sudden it's like, hey, you <laughs> hey, can carry some. <laughs> but yeah, in a, in a survivalist horror campaign, I think if, you, if you're down with playing with weight, that can add a lot to that scenario. Well, and... And it's one specific example of the general concern of making tough choices. Mm-hmm. If you can't carry everything, then it becomes a compelling choice. Well, what do you carry? Right. And, okay, you find the body of a dead traveler, and he has some water on him and some food on him. And you can't carry both, so which do you carry? Right. And, and the multitude of those choices in a, in a more survival-oriented game can really inform character and be really compelling part of your character. The choices you made, the choices you might regret, the choices that worked out that well, you know, all of those can be very compelling. Well, and you have too, like going back to the example of the donkey, it's like you might think a donkey in a survivalist campaign is like, we can't carry everything. All right, we're going to have a donkey, but that adds another element of like, okay, do we help this thing survive that's carrying all of our stuff that we've just decided to hoard and make super precious to us? Or do we right. need to kill this thing and eat it so that we can right. so that we can survive? And know? and we also have to worry about security. And mm-hmm. uh, whereas you can tell the rest of your players, uh, the rest of your player characters, like, hey, keep quiet. Like there are monsters about. Donkey's not going to listen to you right, doing yeah. that. In fact, yeah. from what I know of donkeys, they're absolutely not going to listen to you. Whatever you <laughs> tell them to do, they're going to do the opposite. And it becomes is, is this donkey carrying stuff? Is it worthwhile? And I even thought of your 
your analogy with food and water like we don't have enough to you know we can't carry both well i even like the idea too of uh, you come across guys and they have weapons or water and you can't carry both and it's like i've never come into i've never played a DD campaign where i've chose to take we water over weapons but in a survivalist campaign you might come up with you know that kind of decision and be like that's more important like we yeah. are thirsty. We need to take this. Uh, we have other people to take care of. Hopefully, hopefully, we come back for those weapons or whatever it is. But right. yeah, those decisions I think are what make this type of game really, really compelling. Uh, is mm -hmm. having and and another thing that I really like about this, and it has to be done in the right way. But mm -hmm. and I've always said this. I love uh, conflict at the table between uh, player characters. Once again, it has to be mm -hmm. in the right way. It has to be a Guys, this is an in-game. We're having fun with it, and I, I myself have have been my had my character pitted against another character. We've been going at it, and then we'll look <laughs> at each other and just laugh because we're like, "This is so awesome." Uh, and maybe you have a group that's really good with that, and that's something that they can have a lot of fun with. Is maybe they don't all agree, and they probably yeah. won't all agree with hard decisions, and let that be a fun thing for them. You just have to be careful not to let it leave the table because sometimes that. Sometimes that makes players lose yeah. uh, lose friends. But... Yeah. Well, that makes me but, think too of the old. Hopefully, the, that's not the way it is. The semi-old <laughs> Snickers commercial now of the "You're not you when you're hungry" type thing. Oh, when you don't God. have that's food and ever. you don't have water, it's like you turn into an angry Betty White playing football with everybody. Where you just you just you you start to hate everything around you, and you're just like, all right. I need food now oh, because I'm starting to get hungry. Thinking, I'm thinking of the Brady Bunch one. Oh, that, yeah, yeah. Oh, that is the new one, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. That was an eye for an eye. That's what Dan always said. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. I never said that. <laughs> oh, so good. Uh, yeah, and and I think, uh, as you mentioned, in the standard D&D &D fantasy world, there are so many like concerns that just don't come up. And right. how great would it be in part of a regular game or as a different kind of game for these to come to the forefront. That's, I think, the the promise of what can make survivalist gaming really fun. Uh, one of the things that uh, you were uh, talking to us before we even got into um, our interview, uh, just through email conversation, is saying how you have to, sometimes with a horror campaign, you want to you wanna make it a horror campaign. You want to make it scary for the players, but every now and then you got to break the tension with, with some humor and I just thought of a great way talking about, you know, realistic things that you don't think about in many D&D games. When we when we eat in our campaigns, it's usually for flavor. Like, we just, well, you go to an inn, like, oh, I'm going to order the pheasant. Like, whatever it is, it's for fun. Uh, but in a horror survival campaign, food and water can be really important. can be a very key aspect. Well, if there's monsters running around the world, like... Uh, well, what happens when you need to go to the bathroom? <laughs> like, security is now an issue with that. Like, <laughs> do you have a buddy? Like, <laughs> yeah, the buddy. System. Break the tension with that. Like, have yeah. somebody get attacked while going to the bathroom. I think that'd be a great moment. I uh, I was reading a forum post. Someone was talking about he started playing with a new group of players, and he said they'd be walking around. They're like, okay, we need to go to the bathroom. And he's like, okay, that's fine. and they're like, okay, so. Tim is going to go into the center and pull down his pants, and everyone else is going to stand in a ring around him with their weapons out. <laughs> and he said their last GM, like, if they didn't go to the bathroom ready, regularly, he would make them nauseous or, like, sickened. <laughs> and that when they finally went to the bathroom, they were always getting ambushed by, like, 
hobgoblin assassins. Like they smelled um, it. And, and this GM is like, man, they're like they're like abused house pets. Where I'm just trying to like socialize That's terrible. them. Terrible. Like oh, we gotta stop pooping downwind. Those hobgoblins, they smell us every time. Exactly. My goodness. And, and I yeah. doubt you really want to go that way. But no, but I don't think make so. But... Pooping terrifying if you wanted yeah. to. You yeah. could make it become this fraught experience that players really think about. Yeah. <laughs> um, and probably not. But again, you can you can add that element to a lot of things. Gosh, that'd be great. <laughs> oh man. Am I giving? Right, I'm, roll, I'm roll sure I'm giving initiative. some evil GM some ideas, right? <laughs> roll for initiative. But no, wait. not you, Bob. You're gonna be pooping for the next three rounds. <laughs> or you make them roll for initiative, <laughs> yeah. and they just got their pants down, and they're Gosh. like in the middle. There's enemies on one side. Pull your pants. That's a move action. <laughs> yeah, right. Give me, Gosh. give me a will save. Oh, too bad. You crapped your pants. <laughs> yeah. Right. Gosh, that's funny. Uh, well, actually, the the one thing I actually wanted to say a little bit earlier that I didn't get a chance to, uh, when you talk about survivalist stories, and of course your game world can be different than how you think about things, but I think it's really important to decide, a question that gets asked a lot, are people inherently good or bad? And I think most popular survival stories, like The Walking Dead, it's the concept that people are inherently bad. Yeah. I personally think, and again, this influences my storytelling and, and my definitely my jamming philosophy, that people are inherently good, but only a little bit. You know, if there's a stranger dying of thirst on the road and you have a gallon of water, you're going to give them some water. And right. maybe that's a low bar for goodness, but I think that is good. But what I think about people, and, and I definitely think this would be true of other fantasy races, is that we're a little biased to be good, heavily biased to be tribal. And I think that's the more interesting story because you can do amazingly great things for whoever you consider in your tribe and you can do the most horrible awful things to anyone you think is not in your tribe and so i think that's uh, you're talking about security i think that's my main you know thought process when it comes to how do you set up security for the people you care about in a game uh, what what are your security threats it's that you your tribe they're they got your back but the other tribes they might be nice they might be mean but you at the end of the day, you're not in their tribe. They can do anything to you. Yeah, I was going to say, the the one thing that I always think about is in survival campaigns, at least when I think about them, it's not a one-man show. I think enough people realize mm -hmm. that you need a little bit of companionship to help you make it through whatever this apocalypse is, whether it's big or it's a regional or wh whatever the apocalypse is. Most times, you're not going to have the guy that's like, I don't need anybody. And like mm -hmm. I think of The Walking Dead, whenever they come across somebody who's been by themselves, like... When they came up against Bob for the first time, it was like yeah. he was just—he was so like just—he was just standing there. He's like, "People, I can come with you. Do you have food?" Like, people are looking for other people. They're not looking to make this one-man show where, "Hey, look at me. I survived the apocalypse by myself." Right? Like, right. That's not yeah, usually two what things it is. either happen with that kind of person. Either they—well, three things happen with that. Either they go and they die because they're alone. Or they eventually realize, oh, I need other people, whether it's just for a, it might be for, I need people to help me out, I need people to help me survive, I can't do this all by my own, or it might just be for sanity reasons. Because the third thing that happens to those kind of people that go, mm -hmm. I don't need anybody else, is they they don't have anybody else, and they'll go, they go crazy about it. Morgan, right. for example, yeah, in right. Walking Dead, since we both love Walking Dead. I don't know how, if you watch the show <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. or the comics, but we love it, and yeah. oh, it's so good. Yeah, well, <laughs> and I, I just think of that whole human companionship thing. It's almost like it's, it's if you don't, like you, I, for example, my fiance now, she was over in Romania for a little while working in an orphanage, and she said there was a real distinct difference between the kids that 
had interaction with humans on a regular basis or the ones that if they cried too much they were left alone there was a lot of health issues that started to go with that type of thing in development as well so it it kind of just inside of us as humans there's this and i would imagine that this would go into a fantasy world or whatever it is that you're doing there's some sort of human or or some sort of companionship element to whatever race you play that you need other people to make it through this which i think is awesome for you as a dm because explaining that to your players and being like guys like even if your character starts off this way the group that you're in need it should become your family like you should be really invested in each and every one of the people who you're playing with because their characters like the fact that you have a group is keeping you alive and you as a person should, even if you don't want to admit it, know that. Right. Right. Well, and we had, we had talked, you mentioned Call of Cthulhu, which has very clear, like, sanity rules. And we were talking about, you know, the sociality and needing other beings to keep yourself sane. That's another great area if you do a survival game of the amount of stress and fatigue and just taxes on someone's mental state that happen. And... And again, there are systems that model this, but just thinking about how long has it been since my character had a warm meal? How long has it been since my character had a friendly interaction with someone? How how long has it been, how, how much combat has my character seen in the past couple days? And you can actually game out these effects of, you're not operating at your best if you haven't been eating well, if you haven't been bathing. Uh, yeah. You're just, tr- you might get trigger happy, you might see things. It's incredible how damaging psychologically not sleeping is, right? Like a couple days without sleep does scary things to humans. Oh, yeah. And you want to talk about like horror or bring that, you know, the survival concerns in, just trying to imitate what would happen if people didn't sleep for three days because maybe they're being hunted by something. That can get real scary real fast. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. another thing that obviously has to be a concern in, in this type of game is uh, shelter and that goes along with security and uh, goes along with your group and keeping your group secure you're not just going to pick just anywhere in fact in a lot of stories that are post-apocalyptic horror survivalist stories many many of the shelters that exist in the world are now some of the most dangerous places for whatever mm-hmm. reason and so that becomes an issue a concern all right um there there would be competition for shelter by other things that would want it and if you're in a D world you're with other creatures that hey they want a roof over their head so they're going to eat the occupants and now that's their house or their cave alternately you know it's it's interesting to me you look at it historically like i think there was definitely a time when our ancestors were fighting bears over caves you know what oh, I mean? Man. And it's like, well, are we going to have the cave or is this bear going to have the cave? And and you extrapolate that by a couple hundred when it comes to D&D, just the amount of monsters and the amount of competition for that scarce shelter resource there is. And shelter is the other side of the coin of environment, right? So you talk about environmental challenges. So you need shelter because maybe if you stay outside, you die of frost. Um, you need to make a fire because, again, you might die of cold. But then if you make a fire, what's going to see it? And what's going to be drawn to that fire? And then on the flip side, if you're in kind of a jungle environment trying to survive, maybe if nothing ever dries off, your clothes are rotting off your body. Mm-hmm. And all of your leather tools and harnesses are decaying. 
deal with rust on your weapons and stuff like that from from excess water and everything too. Right, exactly. It's it's keeping shelter. I feel like it's very closely related to hygiene of just keeping yourself sheltered and warm and protected from the elements, and not only you, but your stuff and the other people you care about. Right. Yeah, and hygiene is something too that if you don't wash for a while, there are things that are going to start to happen to you. I mean, just <laughs> different funguses or or whatever it is is going to eventually take its toll on you. At very least, you're gonna suffer on your diplomacy roll. Yeah, like, right, that's right. that's a given. <laughs> like you're gonna suffer a couple points on your diplomacy roll. Right. But right. no, very much so. Uh, you know, we in D and D generally disease is presented as a function of well, you got bitten by something. Yeah. Right. And you got this disease. Those but die it rats, can, man. <laughs> <laughs> but you can you can represent disease as a result of environmental conditions. Um, historically, of course, frostbite was very much a concern, and that goes back to shelter. Mm-hmm. Um, there's trench foot and a lot of terrible things that can happen to your feet if you don't keep them dry. Uh, and just, you know, if you're walking long miles and you're getting blisters, if you're not treating those properly, that can become a major health concern. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so, open source that allows a lot of different bacterial things to get into your body. Right. So you can you can very much change the way you think about disease as a DM to being like, oh, well, you got bit by a were rat to, oh, you weren't you weren't washing, dude, and, and now some stuff's going on, and it's not pretty. Yeah, or even going back with what we talked about before, but there's no magic potions, there's no clerics. Well, it takes time for those wounds to heal, and if you were fighting something that had claws or a sword, those wounds can very easily get infected, and... Uh, who knows? You might need to chop a limb off or two. <laughs> yeah, well, I've, I've been watching Game of Thrones recently crazy. too, and the guy, the head of the Dothraki, he got like that one sword cut in his chest, where the guy just kind of was threatening him and put that sword up, and it was all of a sudden like, it wasn't a mortal wound, but it just got so infected that he ended up dying. You know, it's those weird things that you wouldn't normally think about with healing potions or clerics or. Or whatever type of magical thing. There Welcome is. to the Game of Thrones. I know, fandom. I know. You're I'm, so far behind. But... I am. I am. <laughs> well, welcome, welcome. Um, no, it, it's amazing how much magic changes the world, and it's amazing to look back at like what maybe medieval life was more like, and putting some elements of your maybe your D and D game in that because some aspect of magic that is normally taken for granted isn't functioning or even, even maybe it functions, but just remember it's not available to everyone. Right. So that's the other thing too, is even if you don't want to thrust your player characters into a world where they have to count every pound and they have to really worry about being wounded, the people they encounter can still inhabit that world mm-hmm. where they are in a horror story. They are in a survival story, which can, can honestly help the, player characters feel you know more heroic and more special because they do have access to magical healing yeah and peasants are very worried about well if i get cut i might die you know peasants are really worried well if the harvest doesn't come in i'm gonna starve and the the clerics can you know the party like oh we can just make food yeah yeah or even if you want to even if your players don't take a uh, a cleric as their part of their group that presents a good point like there still could be clerics in the world uh, there mm-hmm. still could be wizards in the world, and uh, now those rare positions are can be really powerful. And you know, who's to say that the wizard isn't the one who controls the settlement because he has powers that nobody else, you know, uh, we well we could try and take it over from him, but he could fireball us to death pretty yeah. easy. Uh, yeah. You know, like 
that guy can cast fire out of his hands. We don't know how to do that. We don't know how to protect against that. And then you got, if maybe there's clerics in a town that they're almost like they're these these healers that everybody comes to. And uh, I think of like a, those hokey like healing, te- people have like healing tents where people come and get healed. And a lot of, a lot of times, <laughs> you know, it's people are faking it and everything, but I think of a... Add an NPC that says, pull out ha- your biggest bill. And you, could have, the, you could have you could have NPCs that are like like snake oil salesmen and things like that <laughs> that are selling magic potions and you might not know until in the battle you're like, this doesn't do anything. Or there might be a healer who uh, maybe by some tricks he he's not really healing people. But there could be real clerics in the world at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Um charlatans are perfect for a game and like you said especially depending on your game world i think that it's entirely possible that wizards and clerics would be in charge of large areas oh, yeah. just on the strength of their magic alone and and some of them might well be evil and i think that's the classic D bad guy but some of them might not be evil they're just in charge because they have all the power i think that's probably one of my biggest um well it hasn't always been a frustration but sometimes it frustrates me is how little Oftentimes in games, society has been affected by magic. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like the presence of magic and or monsters would change everything about a world. Oh, and yeah. the politics Easily. would be radically different. And the concerns that people had would be radically different, even if magic is limited to a small group of people. So in, in survivalist horror-type campaigns, morality uh, is a huge part of it. In fact, I think one of my favorite parts about this kind of genre is that the morality mindset that even your players are going to be exposed to is completely different than any other type of gameplay. I think a lot of the times you're thrown into it, hey, whereas a lot of, let's let's be honest, a lot of the times when you're playing fantasy, uh, there's flat good and bad. A lot, of, mm-hmm. a lot of fantasy lore is just like that. Good, bad, yep clear-cut um and i think i think good there's a lot of good fantasy that breaks that barrier down and we always it's always fun in the campaign where you come across a uh, a, a race that is known as evil but you find a good mm-hmm. character that's breaks that breaks those chains and is different and but in this type of campaign setting i think what really excites me is the gray areas and the moral decisions that you might as a player group come up against that there might not be a good answer there might there might be right. no good answers but you have to make a decision and both decisions they're going to have positives they're both going to have negatives and a decision has to be made and I, that's something that i always get excited about in this kind of a campaign right i think one of the, the background motivations for both post-apocalyptic stories and horror stories that in order for us to live other things have to die and normally in our lives that's plants and animals Mm -hmm. and you know that's just part of what existence is like there were other possibilities you exist instead and like that's the way it is in in survivalist stories i think that can very much be brought into sharp relief right like there is x amount of food food can feed one person there are two people who eats or do and, you try to make it on splitting it halfway and hoping that you find something else right right and 
And it is actually interesting to me with Dungeons & Dragons because you do see more of the individual GMs shaping the world how they want it, right? So if you have a more benevolent GM, someone who is maybe wants to tell a lighter story, you'll split the food and you'll both go a little bit hungry, but something will come up and it'll work out, right? Uh, if you have a more uh, a GM that's tell a more cynical story, you have both of you starve death, right? So nobody lives yeah. because you try to do the right thing. I remember I had a, a character in a game one time. He kept trying to greet people that, you know, looked suspicious or shady. Like, you, you think it's an ambush, but you're not sure yeah. it's an ambush, so right. he's, like, not going to come out guns blazing. He got shot in the face so much. <laughs> and that amused the GM so much. But, yeah, I mean, with, with morality, it's really interesting, the punishment of behavior, one way or the other, the punishment and reward of behavior, but also having these questions. Limitation of resources. How do people figure out how to divide it? And it's not such an issue when resources are abundant, but as soon as they become scarce, this becomes a critical issue. And and again, maybe the moral decision is you, your character starves and the little old lady lives, right? But then is that little old lady going to be able to fight the monster that comes a month from now? Yep. And having to decide that as a character can be really compelling. And then also you get to the point where you have your reasons, but people can justify anything, right? Like, you can say, oh, I'm not feeding this little old lady because she won't be able to fight the monsters anyway. But maybe that's just a justification for your character. And, you know, to your villain topic, like, that's where lots of great villains come from, right? They have perfectly valid reasons in their own mind for doing what they're doing. And it doesn't hold up to other people, but for them, they only do what they had to do. Yeah, villains kind of find this way to reason themselves into... I'm, I made the right choice. I am okay. Like, I'm fine with this. And then it eventually just changes the way that they think into, okay, now maybe I don't care so much about them. I just care about my egocentric self now. Yeah. Or right. even speaking about the morality in these types of games, you might have a character who is a villain and everybody knows it. He's not even doing anything to hide it. But he's in a position of power and you might come across a town where there's a villain that's in power and they're doing a lot of terrible stuff and you ask people well why don't why don't you guys revolt and kill him well because he keeps us safe like right. he he maybe he's a wizard and what or he's a cleric and well he can heal us or he can do this for us you know right. the guy can create water out of thin air like we're not yeah. gonna kill him like we're going yeah. to you know he might be bad but the worst thing is and maybe there's been players who there's been there's characters who say you know we had we did that in another town and half of our people died because of that so this right. is the lesser of two evils is letting this guy be in power right and that's I think that's the phrase that will get bandied about a lot in what in you have a more horrific setting or uh, a more surreal setting is the lesser of two evils right mm -hmm. it's figuring out what is going to cause the less amount of harm because they're probably you're probably getting pushed into situations where there isn't a great option. Although I think like so classically playing a paladin is a problem for people, right? Like they have trouble with the morality, like and also it's a problem for the other characters because they're always telling the paladin, Oh, since you're a paladin, you should be doing this. <laughs> yeah, we know that well. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that I is love, the classic I love problem. paladins and people who play them. They're awesome. <laughs> I love paladins too. I think I think the problem with paladins and the problem sometimes with good in general, especially when it becomes hard, is that people think they don't have to be creative with it, right? And I think in a survivalist game where you know it's very hard to do the right thing, or playing a paladin where the expectations are excitedly high, 
if you're going to be good, it's going to take a lot more creativity and out-of-the-box thinking. If you want to do the right thing, you're going to have to stretch your own imagination and find a solution that's not immediately apparent. And I think that would be the way that I would run a survivalist game, right, is give people these very complicated, very difficult moral decisions and really encourage them to still stay, keep, stay moral and stay good. But what that means is surprise me. Yeah. Show me the solution I wasn't seeing here. And we, I know we talked about The Walking Dead a lot. I think one of the classic villains that's, at least initially, doing what he has to do is the governor, right? Oh, yeah. And and it's great talking about The Walking Dead and, and stories because they can be such rich fertilizer. Fertilizer, that metaphor? I'll go with fertilizer. Fertilizer <laughs> for, for, your GM, for your DM sessions. So we were talking about monsters. And one of the great things about monsters, I think, is figuring out what scares you and figuring out what scares the players and finding a way to bring that to the table. Yeah. And it, it might be something as simple as you got someone who doesn't like spiders. Snakes, in They're... my case. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you have an apocalyptic world where giant snakes came and destroyed all civilization, Chris would be just wetting his pants. <laughs> How I would do it is just the snakes woke up. They were already there under the ground. Bust out of the ground. Woke up. Yep. Classic, like, like did you guys see the terrible Piranhas movie that came out? Uh, probably, like, <laughs> mid-2000s. It was so bad, but it was that type of thing where they drilled down too far into or they explored too far down into a lake, and, like, these ancient piranhas, these ancient piranhas just came out and yeah. started eating everything. It was... The they dumbest. Too deep. <laughs> it was the dumbest movie ever, but that's like that's what it reminds me of. They were there the whole time. They were just sleeping. Well, and, and talking about what freaks you out, uh, of course, the the easy answer is you got a problem with snakes, you got a problem with spider. But getting into things that are, I don't want to say worse, but more troubling. Like for instance, one of one of my favorite monsters is like the alien xenomorph, especially in the film Alien. And one of the reasons that is especially horrifying is because it has all this sexual imagery mixed in with how this thing breeds and what it does to people. And I think translating those things that you're uncomfortable with into a way a monster acts or into a way that monster behaves, or it's not one-on-one, but it's translation of that fear, can make the monster very effective and, and can be something very memorable for you as a GM and for your players. Yeah, I think of, like, if something were to, like, grapple you or were to, like, bite you and it, like, implanted this, like, alien organism within within you, I think of, like, I mean, obviously in Prometheus you see at the end of it the alien bust out of, of the guy's stomach, but I think of, like, on a funnier note, Spaceballs, where it's, like, the guy ate the wrong <laughs> soup or whatever and it just busts out of his stomach. And it's just, like, this idea of having this alien or, or some type of creature that can implant its offspring that's like feeding off of you slowly and then just busts out and it's like hey here's this this creature that's going to try and do this to other people like how do you how do you handle that situation and that might even go back to uh, the thing we talked about with monsters with there being an infectious aspect to it Mm -hmm. i i'm not sure if we shared this story on the podcast before we might i think we did but uh when we went to uh, the Dark Bellows in my Sons of Bastion campaign, uh, you guys came across Mind Flayers, but one of basically one of the group got captured. He, You guys were about oh, to yeah. die. You are about to be overrun by too many monsters. Uh, and he said, go, run. And he stood behind and bravely gave up his life. Um, and 
the the convenient thing was he was moving away to Washington, so uh, this was like this moment that he got to be like, yes, I was the hero tonight. Like I stood my ground, I protected all the other players from being overrun, and uh, he he fights and he we I basically said, oh, you chop off a bunch of heads, you kill some guys, but then you're brought down and you like go you black out. But instead of killing him, he was taken by mind flayers. And mind flayers have, like, tadpoles that insert themselves into the minds of other creatures and then make them into half-mind flayers. And so you guys were still in the Dark Bells, the Underdark of my world, and you see this boat coming across this lake, and you see the figure of uh, your your previous friend, and he's still sitting there at the table, the, uh, the player, and he's just kind of smiling. You guys are like, you've lived? Like, you're okay? Wait, where did you go? Like, why are you coming back? And he hits the shore, and he's got tentacles coming down from his mouth, and you guys had to fight and kill him. Mm-hmm. And, like, that is a horror aspect, that if yep. you introduce that, that, okay, not only if this monster kills you, can you die, but you can be turned, and then you might be fighting another player at the table, only now they're a zombie, or they're a half illithid or whatever it is they're infected with, um... They're gonna roll and they're gonna attack you and uh, I know I I know we play with DM screens and we roll behind the DM screen and some players don't like that but the one thing that I see them really get afraid of is when we've had those couple instances where a player has had to fight another player and they can they just see the rolls going out in front of them and they know that guy just got a nat twenty and they can't even say oh we didn't know if that happened but they're like oh my gosh, this guy's rolling really well and he's going to kill us all. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and and just like you said, one of the great things about tabletop gaming and D&D in particular, there are so many fates worse than death. Right? Yes. Oh, yeah. Depending on your character, death might not be that big a deal. You know, because there's resurrection magic. And also, right. you know, if you're doing a standard D&D setting, there is like a verifiable heaven for characters that are good aligned. Like, they know exactly where they're going to go. But there's a lot of things that can happen to you that are way worse than dying. Yeah, and even talking about the mor- morality, like, you just mentioned, like, the heaven kind of aspect. Well, if religion plays a part, like, then making those tough choices, you might be might even... It adds more severity, like, but my, my eternity is on the line here. I don't want to make the... I know that this is probably the more logical decision, but this is the right decision, and, oh, man, it adds a lot to it. Yeah, and the last thing I'll say about monsters is, you talk about monsters, looking at parasites and looking at things that happen on, like, the insect scale. I'm a horror writer, and I love horror stories, but no one has things that are as creepy as things that are happening to insects right now like mind control zombies laying eggs and living creatures that eat their way out alive like the most horrific things that you can hear described yeah there are there are bugs doing that to other bugs right now on just like a mass scale actually um one of my favorite kind of parasites in the real world so there is a parasite whose name i forget but basically by default part of its life cycle is in cats and part of its life cycle is in rats and when it's in the rats, it actually makes them unafraid of the smell of cat urine. So they're more likely to be consumed and eaten by <laughs> cats because the parasite needs that, right? Hmm. Which is a terrifying concept, right? Yeah. But again, this is real. It can also infect people. And they're thinking it has to do with crazy cat ladies. Huh. Because, you know, like, 
I swear, you watch the show Hoarders, you can kind of smell these people's houses sometimes. With yeah, people yeah. Have, like, 50 cats. <laughs> they think that they might well have this parasite, and some of them do, where they just don't, are not bothered by the smell of cat urine. Because so of these those are, types of parasites is what, oh right. my gosh. So these are the things that are happening in the real world. Hmm. Playing a fantasy game with magic and monsters, you can turn that up to 15 and go from there. There you go. I think you just found the next idea for your short story, Crazy Cat Lady Infested by Parasite. There you I go. heard, man, it's just, it's sounding worse and worse to be a cat lady these days. I heard there was a, uh, I heard there's also a something. Well, in... you know, there's usually so much glamour to being yeah, a cat right? lady. Like, it yeah. seems like such a glamorous lifestyle. Well, I had friends in high school that were like, man. No, I used to want to be a cat lady. <laughs> That's well, like every second grader's dream. When I grow well, I had, up, I, I want to be friends a crazy in high cat school lady. who were like, hey, if both of us never get married, we'll just get a ton of cats and just own a house. And now I'm just like, I want to call them and say, that's such a bad yeah. idea. I heard something recently on, I, I can't remember what podcast I was listening to, but they were talking about how uh, there's something in uh, cat feces that it like causes you to be depressed like if you get too much of it like if you smell too much so people who like live with a ton of cats or have like their cat litter box in the bedroom or whatever like they have like try like tested it out and they are they get more depressed and i'm just like man like man you just don't want to be a cat lady don't be a cat <laughs> all the cat ladies listening to our podcast right now are just like shut up proud proud grandma of i two. love my cats proud grandma of two if she's a cat lady right. now is like i'm not telling my grandkids to ever listen to this again gosh well you know what that makes me think of is i really want to make a, a monster now that's like obviously a parasite to people it's generally not that destructive but like just lives in certain people's houses and some people are totally squicked out by these things people love them and they just can't eradicate them because the people are so attached and they're just below that threshold of harm right like they're not killing anybody they're not they're just sucking a little bit of blood sometimes so they're like ah let them have their maluki parasite they're just a crazy maluki person but they're these like terrifying horrid little creatures dude you got this thing on your face nah it's not so bad or maybe you enter into a settlement uh, with a cat lady who has survived the apocalypse and there's mutant cats that will kill you if you do anything to them. <laughs> Gosh. Uh, different monsters. <laughs> My babies. My babies, man. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's never what you want to hear at the start of a monster fight, right? Like my babies. Yeah, right. Because then you know, like something worse is gonna happen if you start to kill them. Maybe oh. she's like psionic, and so she's hooked up to every single one of the cats. She sees whatever they see. If you kill them, it hurts her. Ooh, I'm putting this in a campaign now. This is great. <laughs> yeah, turn the crazy cat lady up to eleven yep. and just go. Psionic over. cat lady. <laughs> I feel like we have with with the podcast, we have certain things that like get really popular with people. We had a food mage. Then we had a level 20 commoner. I have a feeling that the crazy cat lady is going to be the next yes. big thing. That's everybody like, crazy cat lady. I, well, the hardest thing now is figure out how do I get this crazy cat lady into one of our campaigns yeah, right. without being completely ridiculous. <laughs> I just it's finished adding a uh, level 20 commoner for my book. <laughs> nice. but you guys had like that thing of that being a meme. <laughs> That's yeah, awesome. Yeah. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Great minds, man. Great minds. Another thing to think about when you're talking about this type of world, this whether it's a post-apocalyptic or whatever it is, uh, what something that you have to think about before you start DMing your first night is, what is the currency of this world going to be like? Uh, mm-hmm. Gold, in a lot of cases, is probably going to be irrelevant because you come up against 
uh, town and you're like you're asking for water and you have gold to give them well gold's probably a dime a dozen now like and it's worthless uh, so probably trade is going to be the way that you get things and uh, we we mentioned before you come across uh, you fight these bad guys and they have water and swords and because of your weight you can only take one well what if you come you need water or some food and you come up against a peddler or whatever and he has water but he wants your sword for the water uh, mm-hmm. now when once again here opens up another door of gray area and I mean this isn't so much gray area but morality of uh, well we could overpower this guy and take it or we could do the right thing and either pass it on by or he's not going to let us go with the water unless we give him our sword so what do we do about that <laughs> yeah or he wants something that somebody else has and then it sends you on this whole like yeah. this long quest of all right or, i need to or you switch it around and you find a peddler he has a sword you don't have weapons but he wants your water yeah <laughs> like right well and and you can you can turn the morale concerns up by making that guy a jerk right yeah exactly. like that guy that guy isn't doing anything wrong technically but he's definitely a jerk i would use a stronger word but this is a family safe podcast (laughs) Um, i think that's so true and i think that most people with that position would be jerks because let's be honest in a world like this they've probably been swindled themselves so the only way to react to that is you have to be a swindler or just be completely nope it's what i want uh, you give me what I want, or you can go on your way. Because I know I have something you need. Well, give me what I need. Right. And and what if the guy who kills that guy for the water he's hoarding is incredibly affable, mm-hmm. just super nice guy? Be like, here, here's a water skin. Yeah. Yeah. You know, how do you how do you deal with? I think that that can bring the morality question up in the sharp relief of sometimes doing the right thing is not pleasant at all. And like the quote unquote good guys are not nice. They're kind of jerks sometimes. And sometimes the really bad guys are charming as heck and do these oddly things sometimes while still being horrible human beings on a moral level. Yeah. Um, yeah I think that if you're going to play with that and play with, uh, well, do you overpower this guy? Give, him, give your players more bit of, yeah, he's also a jerk. Yeah. He's not doing anything wrong. But right. he's a huge jerk, and he's just grating. And he's making fun of you while he's doing it. He's, like, mocking your lack of water. Yeah. And almost, yeah. And then they, then even if they don't want to kill him, maybe they don't have to feel as bad about pulling out their sword, putting it to his his throat, and being, like, hand over the water. Because this guy, yeah, like, making fun of them, whatever. All right, I've had enough with this. Yeah. <laughs> we need right. this water. Uh, he's got a lot of water. We have a family to give it to, or whatever. We have to steal from That's him. That's a classic like playground bully. Eventually, like the kid's gonna hold the ball over the person's head just long enough that the kid's gonna get so fest- fed up with it where he's just gonna swing, and it's gonna be yeah. like the classic Back Kick to the Future in the nuts with, with George McFly, where he finally stands <laughs> up and and punches the guy in the face. Oh, I mean, yeah, I just George McFly. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody calls me chicken. oh the the only other thing i want to bring up in something that you brought up earlier about survival games you start off as farmers or blacksmiths or whatever i think that's something that you should take into account even if you're not explicitly running a survival or horror game is the difference in the world between the average person and even your level one adventurers right Mm -hmm. you are not normal and the way that you interact with the world is not normal and 
and that's I think the to some degree every D and D game is a survival game because one of the fundamental concerns of a survival situation is you can't trust the police or army to come if you need them. You're on your own. So to some degree, every adventurer, because they have to kill monsters themselves and they might have to fight bandits or whatever, that's just part of their lifestyle, they're already in a survival story. It's just kind of what elements you focus on. And they're really good at it because they have awesome powers, but if you way, they would very quickly be, be thrown into a horror story. So it's all about that perspective and about you know the relative power of the characters compared to the world they find themselves inhabiting. So that's that's pretty much uh, what we have for you as far as uh, how to run a horror uh, survivalist campaign. Uh, this is something that we really want um, to encourage you guys to uh, try out. And like we said, there is a sense of knowing your group, and this might not be for everybody. Especially, I know some players that go I can't kill everything that doesn't excite me but encourage your group to try it out if and I think some players I would love this kind of thing I in fact we talked about uh you know you get infected and you might have to chop off a hand I would honestly love to play a character that they have to lose a hand like don't do it I know you I see your look Chris <laughs> don't do it in this campaign I just started I didn't like my whole character I just started playing a good character but uh but yeah I would like to actually like in a horror-type campaign, that would be fun for me to give give me terrible options as a as a player. Like you got it, you have to chop off that hand. <laughs> like, but I think that's also knowing your players and talking with them. And because I know a lot of players would also be pissed if you just said, "Oh, we got to chop off your hand now." <laughs> that I was just like... playing My Little Pony Pathfinder, and now like I'm in some weird survivalist horrible world where I'm losing limbs <laughs> and stuff. This is not what I signed up for. My Little Ponies are running around with one ho- or oh, with three yes. legs instead of four now. <laughs> yeah, they you have put a like wheel chain on saw legs. <laughs> yeah, right. chain saw legs. Oh my gosh. <laughs> What was it in uh, the ep- one episode of Talking Dead where Conan was on? He's like, he's like, oh, what would you do in the uh, zombie apocalypse? He's like, I would chop off my hands and attach, what did he say? Attach uh, machetes machetes or something like to that. Him. And uh, somebody was just like, why wouldn't you just hold the machetes? He's like, shut up, man. <laughs> <laughs> I would chop off my hands. But, but yeah, like you give, giving your players hard decisions. But yeah, these are, these are all of our, our ideas of how to, um, run this kind of a game. We really encourage you guys to try this out. If you have stories about having ever done these types of games, uh, we would all love to hear uh, them. We will uh, yeah. uh, we we will give uh, J.M. Perkins email in the show notes. So check that out. Let him know your ideas, and uh, especially let him know uh, how much you enjoy this podcast and the ideas that you've gotten from it. And but yeah, those are our ideas. What we'd like to end this section of the meat with is we're going to throw out just some this is not a creation inspiration episode however we're going to throw out some ideas of other things that maybe you could be inspired by to to have in a in a game setting like this Uh, so who would like to start us off with some ideas well i will say first one of your ideas which i thought was great of taking a that crazy cat lady trope and just (laughs) substituting some kind of monster for the cats Yep. I think that was a great idea that you had. That you displacer beast be a lot of fun. Yeah, the displacer beast woman. <laughs> yeah. Oh gosh, exactly. <laughs> I definitely, definitely want to do that. <laughs> so, contrabality uh, is about a thousand words. I'll give you the very shortened version. So, I had written about this concept of one reason dungeons could exist in your world is they served as 
fantasy fallout shelters, right? Like there was some disaster that was imminent. People had to escape it. So they dug these holes, they built these complexes, and they were going to live down there. Which I actually found out is the entire conceit of an RPG called Earthbound. Which is supposed to be really good. Never played it. But yeah, so it's been done. But I thought it was a cool idea. So my idea was these people are setting up this shelter dungeon. The thing that they're afraid of happens too soon. So they're not able to fully equip it. They're supposed to have food and water and these magical devices to help sustain them. They did get in place. But what they did have is as an emergency measure, they had a thousand rings of sustenance. right? Or not a thousand, a hundred. A hundred rings of sustenance. <laughs> so they sealed the doors, they put on these rings, and that was 10,000. And what happened is, is well, eventually they had babies, right? But they didn't have anything to feed the children. Oh, yeah. So after weaning, either someone had to willingly give up their someone had to willingly give up their ring and die so that this next generation could live on. And what was a of a sacrifice? Um, quickly became an act of like violence and people had to take it, you know, because sometimes people wouldn't want to give up their rings. So if a parent has their back up against the wall, what are they going to do? Um, in the meantime, they've been doing this and they've been inbreeding massively. So what the adventurers find when they come to this place is a hundred of these insane, not even recognizable alien creatures that are just skeletally skinny and they're super, you can't even tell the race of them. And they, they're completely naked because all the cloth has long since rotted. The only thing that's still down there is anything made of metal. So there's these insane creatures that have gotten really, really good at killing each other because they need to take the rings. And they know this dungeon complex really, really well. And the adventurers need something in here. And that's the basic concept for the home of 100 Saved, is yeah. that uh, it's been... If it's 10,000 years, that's what, 500 cycles of 500 generations of this very limited population and these very strict controls and kind of what comes of that. Yeah. And so that was a good fusion of like the survival and horror element of you take the survival concerns and the survival situation and the outcome is just this horrible mess. That's crazy. I know, Chris, when you read that, you were like, it creeped me out, man. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, many of you remember Rich Howard when he was on the episode, and he sent me the link, and he was like, don't read this before you go to bed, because there will be some things that creep you out in here. Like, you, A lot of the descriptions that you put into that article were like, you talked about how they couldn't, like, what do they do with their waste, with their excrement? It's like lining the walls. There's like piles of it everywhere. You know, like their mouths are like... They don't. You said they didn't really have like eyes or noses or anything like. They had like these mouths that barely moved and barely opened anymore. It was just like this intense like this is what you would find after ten thousand years of decay by just living on rings of sustenance. It was crazy. It was crazy. Yeah, yeah. Well, and they're they're also totally obsessed with um, eating living beings right. because it's the only thing they ever taste. So they'll have horrible tactics and put themselves in danger just for the chance to get to taste something new. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, I was when I was thinking about ideas for this, uh, what came one thing that came to my mind is if uh, either I don't know if either of you guys are familiar with uh, Marvel. Marvel Comics? You guys yeah, <laughs> slightly. slightly. Have but we I... seen a movie in the last 10 years? <laughs> right? oh. like, I hear it's pretty big nowadays um, <laughs> as I drink from my uh, Deadpool cup. But um, uh, there are storylines in, in Marvel Comics where they explore what happens 
in the future of the Marvel Universe, and you got old man Logan Wolverine, and he's got like one arm, but he's still a you know he's still kicking butt. Uh, you got uh, a different Spider-Man. It's just it's futuristic world style, but there's an apocalyptic uh, note to it. In fact, Washington D.C. completely just like destroyed buildings, ruins because something happened with the Hulk. And the Hulk was like cloned or something, and now there are just mutated Hulks just rampaging all across uh, Washington D.C. And you go there, and you're gonna die because you you can't kill the Hulk, let alone hundreds of Hulks running around fighting each other, ripping each other's arms off, regrowing their arms, and just going nuts. Like it's it's yeah. just chaos. Uh, and one thing that uh, you had mentioned, John, was you know magic in a world should be really should really affect how a world uh, works and should have key moments in the timeline where magic is really key to how history uh, is set and everything. And we also talked about in this style of game there being this sense of sometimes the world comes to this point of an apocalypse because mankind has like crossed a line or something yep. well i i really like the idea of uh these these hull creatures and i thought well uh you could replace uh these hull creatures in your world with golems and maybe what wizards did was they decided hey we we want to create a golem army and what they did was they came up with some crazy magic that golems were able to regenerate themselves and so now you have these golems that not only are they strong and i think it's honestly i think it's better if they're either made of flesh or clay because that just adds a creepier aspect especially flesh yeah, but together you know you, you you're fighting these golems and you're like oh we're taking him down his arm just fell off well then all of a sudden that arm just kind of like stitches back up and like reattaches through magical means and they're completely you cannot kill these things you cannot take them down and i like this idea of for whatever reason these things went rogue maybe in in this magical aspect they had more of a free will and a mindset and they just completely started devastating whatever land it is that they're in and they would have no means unless you added that in to reproduce obviously being golems but these things would be these things would be those things that your players would fear because there's absolutely no way to kill them you br and you could have this crazy moment where your players fight one of these things they bring them down they have their little final fantasy 7 moment where they're just like yeah and they win and they're all happy and then you tell you say roll a spot check and they like turn around and this thing is like reattaching all of its limbs and standing up again and they're just like Oh my gosh. And then that's the moment where you have three others come over the hillside and they're just like, run. <laughs> but I, I think that would be a completely terrifying encounter. And all you need is one encounter and then those players aren't going to want to fight those things yeah, anymore. Yeah, right, right. It brings that element of horror in where yeah. it's like, oh, okay, we got to avoid these things now. <laughs> totally. A flesh well, golem with vampiric quick regen. Oh, oh gosh. And that's, that's, <laughs> that's even a good point is, well, if the wizards have gone too far, maybe they've, Maybe they've spliced like different types of monster DNA into these golems, mm -hmm. and so maybe there is a vampiric yeah. like element to it, and yeah. they got their regeneration from troll DNA or something, whatever it is. But yeah. Well, and and like you were saying with the uh, 
kind of what you're drawing inspiration from the hulks have conquered destroyed dc is all the apocalyptic scenarios we've discussed this can be a localized thing because yeah. like we said D D is kind of predicated on this concept that there's been apocalypses at least for certain races in the past so this can be a localized phenomenon this can be limited to a race and you could still have that feel of something terrible happened here and this was an apocalypse for some people and get that in you know any world you have of like a city overrun by these flesh golems right so that everything that was living there is dead now yeah and these are the only things that are moving around yeah because the reality is is there's like transportation or tran- teleportation magic within the worlds, but that's not readily available to everybody. So people mm-hmm. have to either walk or run or ride horses. It's not like today where we have cars and trains and, and airplanes to get places really, really quickly. Word's not going to travel, and people aren't going to know if this apocalyptic thing happened. So it very easily could be an apocalyptic thing that happened in a specific area, and nobody right. would ever know about it. Or even flip that on its head, and there are localized areas of this world where everything's okay but the mass majority of the world is not okay um Mm -hmm. i only watched one episode of it because i just wasn't a huge fan of it but i like the concept of attack on titan and there Mm. being huge walls around these cities that protect them from the outside world where these huge like flesh giants live and they would kill them if it wasn't for these huge walls but you could have like civilizations that have built these giant walls that protect themselves from the outside world and everything inside those walls is okay. But whether it's your characters need to leave for whatever reason, or those walls are compromised, like now that location that's in this terrible world that is okay is not okay. But um, two two things I want to mention that I've been writing on Tribality, you know, for that people can use to spark off of. So one was I made a world, and the concept was I rolled random races. And the whatever I rolled was going to be the dominant races of that world. Mm. So I rolled half orc, Irfit or Ifrit? I forget how you pronounce yeah, it. Ifrit, Ifrit, yeah, Ifrit. Ifrit. Excuse me. I think, um, yeah, I think different people say it different ways, but <laughs> is it Azamar? Azamar. Azamar. Yeah. Azamar. Um, Strix, Gripply, and Catfolk. Hmm. And so my concept was. Oh, and you know, I said half orcs. I think. The concept was is that orcs finally do what they're always threatening to do, which is kill everyone. Yeah. So you start with a standard fantasy world, and it's been an apocalypse for humans, elves, dwarves, and halflings. Like, they're they're gone, or if they still exist, they're super isolated. They're not a major force anymore. And so this world is kind of what grew back after the orcs kind of fell on themselves. And, you know, the, they weren't sustainable, so eventually they were replaced by something else. So I thought that was a really interesting exercise. And then the other thing I'm working on in Tribality is uh, the city of Salton Wounds, which is um, they couldn't kill the Tarask, so they managed to bind it, and they had to keep butchering it over and over again to keep it from escaping. But then they found out that they could eat that, and this is the city that's grown up around it. Um, so, like, the just the screams of this thing and it moving around and making small earthquakes are, like, part of the city's yeah. environment. Every Meat day. is super, super cheap, but there's all this weird crap they do with its various fluids, Shut like, up. all of its alchemical process. Um, and I will point out, I, the original idea wasn't mine. Um, someone named Thomas T. did it, posted about it on, I think it was RPG Net, which I mentioned in the article. But I just love this concept of the city built around this Tarrasque and how... 
that's you awesome. know awful this is his um and it's i've been writing about it awesome. awesome yeah yeah <laughs> that could very be like horrific. the secret of a city that people don't know about yeah it's just that's like, true too yeah and uh, the the more generations that grow up with that are just are gonna question it less and less like so it's just how things are. Why Wait, you are mean you guys like... don't have your own Tarask? Like, <laughs> you right. guys mean that your city doesn't shake every day at noon? Yeah, right. like... <laughs> yeah exactly. Well, and, and the way I write it is, you know, it's blood is seeping into the ground. So, yeah. like, the area around the city is changing. And it's really messing with magic because the Tarask traditionally has spell resistance. Mm-hmm. But because its essence is constantly seeping into everything, like, magic is starting to get wonky in this area. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I, I really like that city. That yeah, that's cool. the one. The one set of articles that I hadn't read of yours. I re- I read the one about the random generation ones with the the orc tide and all that stuff. But mm-hmm. I, I totally want to go back and read the Tarask ones now. <laughs> that sounds so cool. Uh, another movie that would inspire me in this, and I think this would be really cool to play in, is if you've ever read the book or seen the movie. I have not read the book, but I do love the movie. Even though I, my wife tells me movie's not as good as the book and i'm just like well i've seen the movie now so <laughs> but uh blindness is a really really good example of this post-apocalyptic world and if you don't know the story so basically the whole world it starts with one person and it spreads and the one of the things i like about the story is at least in the movie they never explain what it is that really like what was the science or that behind this that made this disease or whatever it is spread but one person starts he can't see and in the in the story it's he doesn't see black he sees white like just overpowering white and then it starts spreading until the whole world except for this one woman in the story is completely blind they just see white and you know the government like quarantines people as this starts to happen and so most of the story takes place in a quarantined uh, building and all of a sudden food doesn't start food stops coming in like and so now there's a lack of food and uh, the strong people the the bad strong people start hoarding the food and they start saying all right you need to do this or that for us to give you some food but it's a very post-apocalyptic cynical like way of thinking of humanity but this one woman is not blind and her trying to not let anybody know this but get an upper hand to help the people around her the weak but i think that would be a crazy like in a fantasy world even like a crazy setting where the whole world maybe it's magic that makes it happen whole world goes blind loses the senses and maybe your players are all they all can see or maybe you you have them be maybe some of your players will want to play as blind characters Mm -hmm. We've had Flawful Jared on the show before. Oh, yeah. He played a blind character one episode or one one campaign, and we we didn't let him see the battle map, and so he had to kind of really play with not with not seeing what was going on in battle and trying to go off of his uh, listen checks and everything, and it was really fun for him. And some players might really love that kind of concept, but that that leads to a good way to start that kind of world is falling into pieces because nobody can see anymore and well, the way things change and too that. with that idea it's like you could have people from your group slowly start to go blind like yeah one yeah. at a time and it's like oh shoot am i gonna be the next one like yeah. it breeds that fear within somebody too and and i would actually tweak it just a bit like you were saying some people are going blind but actually um they're slowly going blind right like yeah, they right. don't start off blind like they have normal vision and then they have half vision and then right. they can see 30 feet, and then they can see 10 feet, yeah. and this, this slowly dawning That's horror. even, I like that, that's even 
scarier than right. sudden blindness because it's like you mm-hmm. seeing the progression and seeing like even if you do it by every 10 feet for whatever it's like oh mm-hmm. no oh no yeah oh, no. <laughs> it's the anticipation man yeah it's just you see it knife. coming <laughs> yeah especially especially if you want it to be a campaign where they potentially will fix it yeah having that ticking clock where ticking like clock, they yeah. get a sense of what's coming um yeah that's that's the one tweak out twist i would have on that. i like that tweak a lot good tweak i was gonna say oh and i was just gonna say like if you're gonna be a blind character i just imagine someone constantly casting fog cloud like fog clouds <laughs> yeah, for right. everyone if i can't see no one's gonna see well it was, it was hilarious because in the in the session that our fluffle jared played uh a blind character uh without thinking about it uh one of the other players in the group is a wizard and we were in an ogre den and they they came up against an ogre that was like sleeping leaning up up and he's got this big warhammer and there's a big gong and he's like oh if that ogre wakes up and hits that gong entire ogre clan is coming out to kill us so he cast silence on the room and so (laughs) jared is like like he doesn't even realize he's like oh i cast silence and jared's just looking like you you serious like are you serious and so the whole entire (laughs) campaign we he was playing through skype so (laughs) so i think we might have like muted him and like had him like text us so he didn't know anything that was going on he couldn't see the battle map it was just the funniest encounter. He just became the most useless player ever. It was so funny. That's pretty great. Now I want to make a like horrendously limited uh, alchemical item that's just like a jacket of smoke sticks. Like you light one corner and it creates like the smoke sticks for like five hours. Oh man, oh, your blind geez. character has never been more overpowered. Yeah, like right. only good yeah. for him. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Oh. So. With this, with all of this in mind, we really hope that you consider doing a survivalist slash horror campaign. I know we, Mitch and I, have both learned a lot. JM has uh, some stuff that he's going to be planning on working on. Crazy cat lady, come on, you know you want to do it, John. Uh, but with that in mind, John, where where can they get a hold of you if they want to share some of their their takeaways from this episode? Yeah, um, my best email is john uh, my personal website is J.M. Perkins, but there's not too much stuff there. Most of the writing I do nowadays is on Tribality, and there's tons of places to comment there. But email, probably best, john at jmperkins.com. I have a Twitter, I got a Facebook, I got a Google+, but email is my favorite. Cool. <laughs> cool. And like I said, go out and check out all of his uh, short stories and his novels, especially uh, Love, Werewolves, and Algorithms. The best two ninety nine you will spend, and the best two ninety nine I've spent in the past month. So... John, we well, hope thank that, you so uh, much for saying that. And yeah. this was an absolute blast, guys. Thank you yeah, so much for having fun. me on. We yeah. will definitely have you on again, as long as you know you you like it. And <laughs> we <laughs> like next episode. Why did why did Jay Perkins never come back? Uh, I We're guess only he was talking lying. about crazy cat ladies next. Yeah. Yeah. the entire hour. <laughs> he started having great. he started he started having nightmares and just horrorish dreams yeah. <laughs> because of the podcast. He's just deciding not to come back. <laughs> so, anyways, John, thank you so much for joining us. We we had a blast. We hope to hear from you again yeah, soon. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, guys. So that's all we have for you on this episode of the Dungeon Masters Block. We hope that you enjoyed this awesome interview with our buddy John Perkins. Uh, check out uh, his stuff, his stories. You can go to tribality.com for we'll that. We'll put the links in for everything else that we've mentioned of a- his in the exactly. show notes. But definitely check him out. He's got some awesome stuff. And also let him know, let us know, any ideas, any stories you have related to this episode topic. Just send us... Uh, an email or send him an email. Speaking of, Chris, 
Where can they get in contact with us if they want to? Yeah, you can get in contact with us at dungeonmasterblock at gmail.com. Send all of your stories that are longer than 140 characters on Twitter. Uh, we'd love to hear them. We, we read all of them. Uh, we respond to all of them. And you can also, if you feel so inclined, leave us a five-star review on iTunes. That will greatly help us out, grow as a podcast, and help our community that you guys have been so graciously involved in grow as well. Uh, you can also find us on Stitcher. We've been on there for a little while now, too. Yeah, get on to iTunes, give us those five-star reviews. Once we hit 100 five-star reviews, me and Chris are going to do something really special for you guys, the listeners. So get on there, fill up those review spots. Uh, if you would like to follow us on Twitter, you can follow us on, at DMS underscore block. That's at DMS block. Or like our Facebook page, or both, for updates and just all-around good DMing great stuff. We have a special announcement for those of you who are in the Grand Rapids, Michigan area, or any of those of you who are willing to travel. Uh, we will be hosting me and Chris, and Fluffle Jared, I believe, is also helping, and uh, Paladin Frank uh, will also be helping uh, DM, and we are going to have a RPG Dungeons & Dragons night at a local store in Kentwood, Michigan, Alpha Players. And we're going to be there, and we're just going to have a great time. It's going to start at 6 o'clock. Uh, that date is going to be 6 p.m., March 31st. It's a Tuesday. If you are available, if you're somewhere near, come on out. We'd love to meet you guys, talk about the podcast, talk about what you guys like, and, of course, we'd love to play some Dungeons & Dragons. Oh, yeah, we'll, be, we'll all be DMing that night. So if you want to get in on some of our games, see how we do things, come on out. You can be one of the characters within our, our one-shot night for that. One-shot game for that night. Before we go, we have, of course, a Patreon shout-out for this week. Each week, uh, for the next couple of weeks, we'll have a Patreon shout-out. We could do a couple right now, but we want to give each and every one of you who sign up to be a Patreon member uh, with us a special one-week shout-out. So, if you're already signed up, don't worry. Your shout-out your, is your coming. Your time is coming. Yep. yep. But with that, the shout-out for this week's Patreon member goes to... Richard Howard! Howard. Yeah! Oh, you are Rich. Silver Dragon, Rich! Oh, we so much appreciate you. Uh, thank you so much for all that you do. You're awesome. Yep. Thank you very much. With that, uh, we are going to close out our episode of the Dungeon Master's Block, the place where you come to hear about the Dungeon Master, the most important person in the game, the only person capable of playing God, killing characters, and lowering the egos of every other person at the table. Have a good night. Keep on Dungeon Mastering. Goodbye.